Greetings, and welcome to Murder on the Tracks, Part 4, Past and Present. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, and their murders, and the cover-up that's followed ever since, to quickly bring you up to speed, on August 23, 1987, 17-year-old Kevin Ives and 16-year-old Don Henry were murdered in Alexander, Arkansas, and in a further act of brutality, their bodies were placed on the railway tracks in an attempt to cover up their murders. And fast-forwarding to 1995, we can see that in this FBI document, a cover-up in the investigation exists with law enforcement. And we've had a very thorough look at other such documents that all point in the same direction. And you'll find a lot of those documents in Parts 1 through 3 of the Murder on the Track series. as well as documentation that implicates some of those law enforcement officials not only being implicated in the cover-up, but also being implicated in the actual murders themselves. And we've also learned how that cover-up has reached not only to the state level, but also to the federal level as well. So in Murder on the Tracks Part 4, Past and Present, we're going to have a look at what the title suggests, and we'll go back in time and have a look at what was known about the case in its earliest stages, and compare that to what was discovered later on. And we'll revisit some documents and footage that we've already looked at, as well as taking a good look at a whole bunch of new footage and documents that we haven't seen yet, including both episodes of television's Unsolved Mysteries that had Kevin and Don's story in them. So let's go back to the original Unsolved Mysteries episode that was aired on October 12th, 1988. And to give you an idea of what was going on up until that point in time, although the boys were murdered at the end of August in 1987, it took another seven long months until April 27th, 1988 to get a real investigation started. And ironically enough, as we'll see, it would be prosecutors Dan Harmon and Richard Garrett that would be leading that investigation. So let's sit back and watch the first episode of Unsolved Mysteries that featured Kevin and Don, and take note of what the authorities knew at the time. In light of this new evidence, the grand jury changed this ruling from probable homicide to definite homicide. So let's have a look at what became of Richard Garrett, the deputy prosecuting attorney of Saline County who, as we just saw, portrayed himself and came across as one of the good guys in trying to solve the murders of Kevin and Don. And from this FBI document in early 1994, we can see where it says, Richard Garrett appeared on an airing of Unsolved Mysteries, which is what we just looked at, requesting that individuals with tips on captioned victims' deaths call in information. And you'll notice that we actually didn't see Richard Garrett requesting individuals call in on the show we just watched. And we're going to find out shortly why that is. But if you quickly notice at the top of this FBI document written in 1994, you'll see that it states Dan Harmon, a local attorney, and Richard Garrett, deputy prosecuting attorney for Saline County, approached the victim's parents, and this would be back in 1988, regarding their discontent with the rulings. Harmon offered to act as counsel for the families. Shortly thereafter, Dan Harmon was appointed the, quote, special prosecutor, end quote, in the case by Saline County, Arkansas judge John Cole. 
Further, Little Rock FBI investigation reveals that Benton Chief of Police Rick Almendorf, Judge John Cole, and Dan Harmon were at Judge Cole's residence when Dan Harmon suggested that he be made special prosecutor for the Ives Henry case. So how about that? Keep in mind that at this point in time, Dan Harmon is only an independent lawyer, not working for the county or the state or anything. But he was obviously well connected enough to convince John Cole, who was the judge presiding over the grand jury that were investigating Kevin and Don's murders in 1988, to let him, Dan Harmon, be the special prosecutor and lead the grand jury, while having his good friend, Saline County Deputy Prosecutor Richard Garrett, as his partner on the case. And we'll come back to Dan Harmon later on. But let's go back to Richard Garrett's appearance in Unsolved Mysteries in October of 1988, where he was requesting that individuals with tips call in. Then, we see from the FBI's investigation in 1994, they say, after this murder was aired on Unsolved Mysteries, Harmon put Richard Garrett in charge of all leads. Individuals would call in with information, and a formal statement was never taken. The individual would then be threatened by telephone to keep his or her mouth shut. Imagine that. So after Unsolved Mysteries aired their episode on October 12, 1988, witnesses were calling in and getting threatened over the telephone. And threats over the telephone weren't the only things that started happening after October 12, 1988. From this FBI document, we can see that Keith McCaskill, only a month after the Unsolved Mysteries show aired, was himself murdered on November 11, 1988. And he was also named by another witness as being at the tracks that night when Kevin and Don were killed. Reportedly, McCaskill phoned in to Richard Garrett only days before and went in to meet him, only to wind up dead a couple of days later. And though McCaskill would be the first to be killed after the airing of Unsolved Mysteries, he was actually the second witness to be killed, and we'll meet the first coming up in a bit since the beginning of the grand jury's investigation in April of 1988. And despite two witnesses in the grand jury into Kevin and Don being killed by November of 1988, the authorities refused to link those killings to that of Kevin and Don. McCaskill was a witness in the Bryant train deaths investigation. Although police haven't ascertained a motive for the murder, they say there's no connection. Link, uh, this investigation to the death of Don Henry or Kevin Ives. And I don't foresee anything in, in uh, the pursuance of the rest of this investigation that would be uh, anything that would uh, make me change my mind. Next in the FBI's 1994 investigation, we see that only a couple of months after Keith McCaskill was murdered, another witness in Kevin and Don's case was murdered, Greg Collins, who was killed in January of 1989 who had been subpoenaed by the grand jury to testify in regard to the deaths of Ives and Henry. Prior to his testifying, Collins was murdered. And three months after Greg Collins's murder, in April of 1989, Jeff Rhodes was murdered. He was found dead in a trash dumpster located in Benton, Arkansas. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Well, the pattern continues. Only three months after the murder of Jeff Rhodes, Richard Winters is murdered in July of 1989 in what the FBI describes as a setup death. Then we can see in the FBI's 1994 investigation where it says surrounding this case are at least six murders with possible links. And then we see in this FBI document dated December 22, 1994 the FBI states 
Unsolved Mysteries is currently running an old film clip, which was made shortly after the boys' deaths. Featured on the tape are Danny Allen, Richard Garrett, and Curtis Henry, which was the episode we just watched, as we'll see soon in the second episode of Unsolved Mysteries that showed Kevin and Don's case, only featured Richard Garrett, and not Danny Allen or Curtis Henry. So anyways, the FBI goes on to state, in light of a possible law enforcement cover-up, it is requested that the FBI remake a tape on Unsolved Mysteries to replace the current tape running. And that's the version we just watched, the remake. And we know that because they removed the part where Richard Garrett was asking individuals to call in with tips. The two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries was in syndication in 1994 playing around the country as reruns. And I find it very interesting that by December of 1994, the FBI would want to remake the Unsolved Mysteries episode because of a possible law enforcement cover-up, while mentioning Danny Allen and Richard Garrett as well. And not only that, but this is on the same document that we saw in Murder on the Tracks Part 2 that talks about Officer Danny Allen's polygraph, and we'll come back to him later on. But to quickly recap everything we just saw pertaining to the Unsolved Mysteries episode in October of 1988, we saw the FBI's investigation in early 1994, noting that Richard Garrett had appeared on Unsolved Mysteries requesting that individuals with tips call in. And when they would call in, they'd be threatened to keep their mouths shut. And then after about a year of investigating, the FBI mentions Danny Allen and Richard Garrett in light of a possible law enforcement cover-up and are requesting to remake the Unsolved Mysteries tape. And we also saw that the nine months that followed that original airing of Unsolved Mysteries in October of 1988, no less than four people connected to Kevin and Don's case in some way or another are murdered themselves. And we also saw the FBI state at that point in their investigation that there were at least six murders with possible links. So what do you think of Richard Garrett now? And we're not done with Richard Garrett yet. Here's a signed and sworn affidavit from September of 1988, with Richard Garrett talking about a witness in another unrelated case, stating, he was told the drugs were planted on him by Kirk Lane, a former member of the Benton Police Department. And as we can see, Richard Garrett signed that sworn affidavit on the 19th day of September 1988, witnessed by the public notary, Sandy Thornbury, and I find this document to be very interesting, as I'm sure some of the good people of the state of Arkansas might as well. Because for those who don't know, Kirk Lane is currently the Arkansas State Drug Director, put there in 2017 by Governor Asa Hutchinson. So we'll see Richard Garrett a little bit later on, but let's have a look at Kirk Lane and have a look at what some of the documents say about him. And here's an Arkansas State Police report dated October 12, 1988 which means that, ironically enough, it was written on the same day as the airing of the first episode of Unsolved Mysteries, featuring Kevin and Don. And the report was detailing information concerning the two boys who were killed on the railroad track at Bryant. There are physical descriptions following each name. There is an asterisk beside the name of Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell, denoting, quote, most dangerous, end quote. A photostatic copy, or a photocopy, of this paper will be attached to this report. And here's the photocopy showing Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell, who was Lane's good friend and partner, I should add, with the asterisk beside their names denoting most dangerous. And beside the name of Kirk Lane, we can see where it says, killed the Bryant children being investigated. And there's this written statement given by a witness in a later investigation, I believe, 
in which the witness states, Kirk Lane is the key to the boys on the track. And you can tell it's a different person, as the handwriting is different. The person writing the second statement is consistent on their T's and H's. And the written B's are completely different. Anyways, I just thought I'd point that out. So when you consider that Arkansas State Police report was written on the same day as the airing of the Unsolved Mysteries featuring Kevin and Don, it's at the very least yet another one of those coincidences of the many of them that we see throughout this case concerning Kevin and Don. Here's another Arkansas State Police report drafted on June 20th, 1988. So it was written before the Unsolved Mysteries episode, though we didn't hear anything about it on the show. And in it, witness Ronnie Godwin stated, I observed a police car in the driveway to the grocery store. There were a couple of officers pushing a subject up against the telephone booth. I pulled off the road by some tracks and watched. There was a subject laying on the ground, not moving, and another officer was standing off to the side of the car. I could not tell much about the officers except the one pushing the subject against the phone booth, and he was about 200 pounds, 6 foot tall, with sort of long brown hair, wearing a white or a light color shirt. As I stopped my car, I saw them pick the boy up off the ground and throw him into the back seat. After putting the boys into the back seat of the car, they drove off up to the top of the mountain. I guess in about three to five minutes they came back down and drove past where I was sitting. I did not see the boys in the car at this time, just a grocery or a garbage bag sitting in the back seat. And then we see another Arkansas State Police report only three days later on June 23, 1988, detailing Ronnie Godwin's witness account. And it states, Godwin left Gigi's and was traveling home, driving south on Highway 111, when he saw two men he believed to be police officers, two teenage boys, and what he believed to be an unmarked police car, parked in the parking lot of Miller's Grocery. He estimated the time to be approximately 2.30 a.m. And going to the second page of the document, one of the men described as the larger of the two, and dressed in a white pullover shirt and blue jeans, was seen pushing a teenaged white male against a phone booth. Another teenager was kneeling on the ground between the phone booth and the police car. A second man, Godwin believed to be a police officer, also was standing over the teenage boy, kneeling on the ground. Godwin watched as the man in the white shirt pushed the boy against the phone booth several times, and then both men loaded the boys into the back seat of the car. The car crossed Highway 111 and proceeded east along Shoal Road. Godwin provided information by drawing a map, which detailed the location of his vehicle and the relative location of the grocery store and phone booth. A compilation of the information will be provided on a diagram attached to this report. And here's the diagram, and I'll zoom in here in case you want to pause and read the information. And while this report doesn't name names, its significance is pretty apparent in the information it does reveal especially when we take into consideration the next couple of accounts we're going to look at. And in yet another Arkansas State Police report, about a year and a half later on February 27, 1990, the report details an account by club owner Mike Crook, who was incarcerated at the time, and he was relaying what he had been told by a witness, who said he saw pretty much the exact same thing that Ronnie Godwin did, only he saw a little bit more. Namely that when Kevin and Don approached the grocery store, whether you want to call it Miller's or the Ranchette grocery store, they were accompanied by a third boy on a motorcycle. That would be Keith Coney. And we can see that the report says, Crook states that the boy in the motorcycle, Keith Coney, rode off. And we'll come back to Keith Coney in a minute. And after he rode off, an unmarked police car pulled up, and two men in plain clothes got out. And Jerry, who was the witness that was telling Mike Crook about what he saw, 
said one of them was Kirk Lane, who used to work for the Benton Police Department, and the other guy he did not know, but he was a large man, which description-wise would match Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell, with Campbell being the taller of the two, I believe. Anyways, Crook states that the boys and these two cops got into an argument, and the two cops beat the boys unconscious, and threw them into the car and then drove off. And further down we see, Crook states that before Keith McCaskill was killed, and remember he was the second witness murdered since the grand jury started in April of 1988, and the first witness killed after the Unsolved Mystery show in October of 88, with Richard Garrett asking for people with tips to call in. So anyways, McCaskill told Crook that Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell of the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office were following him around, and he was afraid they were going to kill him. So how about that? Another bunch of coincidences. So now let's go have a look at the boy who rode off on the motorcycle, Keith Coney. And in this FBI document, which really doesn't tell us much as it's all redacted, but we see Keith Coney, deceased, listed there, and he was the first witness in Kevin and Don's case to get killed on May 17, 1988, just weeks after the grand jury looking into Kevin and Don had begun. And as we can see, despite the redactions, his name is listed among others surrounding Kevin and Don, including one of the four guys that was killed soon following that first episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And although we don't have an actual statement from Keith Coney himself, we do from his parents, who relayed what he had told them. So let's hear from Keith Coney's mother and listen to what she had to say. And I don't think it was an accident because he was fearing for his life, you know, a couple of months before. He said a couple of times that he knew people, that he was being watched and he was afraid. Mrs. Alexander says her son knew the two teenagers run over by the train, and she says he indicated to her he had been there when the boys had died, that he spotted two attackers. But he knew there was two there. I did try to get him to tell me who, and he, he was either afraid or didn't know. And let's quickly look at a couple of things she said there. And I don't think it was an accident because he was fearing for his life, you know, a couple of months before. He said a couple of times that he knew people, that he was being watched and he was afraid. So Keith Coney started fearing for his life a couple of months before he was killed on May 17, 1988. And what was happening during those couple of months? Well, that's when the grand jury was being formed to look into the murders of Kevin and Don, which was officially started on April 27, 1988, less than a month before Keith Coney's death. So let's look at the rest of what was said again. Mrs. Alexander says her son knew the two teenagers run over by the train, and she says he indicated to her he had been there when the boys had died, that he spotted two attackers. But he knew there was two there. I did try to get him to tell me who, and he, he was either afraid or didn't know. So Keith Coney was with Kevin and Don, which matches what Mike Crook had relayed to the Arkansas State Police, stating two boys walked up to the grocery store and one boy rode up on a motorcycle, and that would be Keith Coney, who, by the way, would be killed on his motorcycle. Anyways, the three of them approached the store smoking a joint together, and according to Crook's account, the boy in the motorcycle, Keith Coney, rode off, when an unmarked police car pulled up and two men, in plain clothes, got out. And Jerry, who gave the information to Crook, said one of them was Kirk Lane. And if you'll remember, those statements matched witness Ronnie Godwin's statements, 
who said he saw two men he believed to be police officers. And again, let's not forget that he said that he was being followed and he was fearing for his life. Which is similar to what Mike Crook told the Arkansas State Police, saying that Keith McCaskill told him, Crook, that Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell were following him around and he was afraid they were going to kill him. So although Keith Coney told his mom that he saw who killed Kevin and Don, he couldn't, or it's more likely that he wouldn't, tell her who it was that killed Kevin and Don. So let's have a look at what he allegedly told his father. And if we go over and have a look at the idfiles.com website, which was created by Kevin's mother, Linda Ives, and Prosecutor Gene Duffy, who we're going to meet later on. It's an excellent site, and it's the best one there is out there for information on the boys. And it's currently being revamped with a major overhaul, so I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's done. Anyways, we can see where it says, Another state police report would have corroborated Crook's statement about a third boy, Coney, if pursued. But it wasn't. A December 8, 1988 interview of Joseph Clark Farmer, a friend of Eugene and Keith Coney, Eugene being Keith's father. Farmer said he was talking to Eugene Coney about the two boys not long after they were killed. And Eugene said, Keith said the cops killed the boys. And looking below that, we can see where it says, Phyllis Cornyn, and that would be FBI agent Phyllis Cornyn, as we can see by this letter to the FBI, by author Mara Lavera, who wrote the award-winning book, The Boys on the Tracks. And we'll be coming back to this letter, as well as taking a visit to Mara Lavera's book, The Boys on the Tracks, a little later on. But anyways, back to what I was getting at, FBI agent Phyllis Cornyn told Linda Ives that she had confirmed that Keith Coney was with the boys just before they were murdered. So how about that? And how about this? Keith Coney just happened to be friends with Keith McCaskill. And not only that, but Keith Coney was also friends with another young man, Daniel Burden, who went missing in March 1989. And all that was ever found of Daniel Burden was a few articles of his clothing, after an anonymous caller called in and said he had been murdered and his body dumped in the Arkansas River. And check this out. Daniel Burden just happened to be a friend of Greg Collins. Like, wow. I mean, come on, how obvious is this? And here's an interrogatory from FBI agent Phyllis Cornyn. And if you don't know what an interrogatory is, it's basically a written statement, or as defined here, answers to written questions. And according to FBI agent Phyllis Cornyn, information was developed on two local law enforcement officers, possibly being involved in the deaths of the boys. Upon reporting this information, I was advised I would not interview these individuals. And the individuals she's talking about are the law enforcement officers that have been implicated in various reports, Kirk Lane and his partner Jay Campbell. And if you remember from previous installments of Murder on the Tracks, we saw that Jay Campbell, in 2007, was sentenced to 40 years in jail for drugs and racketeering, among other charges. And speaking of Jay Campbell, we can see that in 1986, Dan Lasseter, and if you remember him from a previous Murder on the Track series, he was one of Bill Clinton's friends and financial backers in the earlier days of Bill Clinton's governorship. And he too went to jail in 1986 for cocaine distribution. And he advised that he has known Jay Campbell since he was 13 or 14 years old, as Campbell was a friend. However, Campbell had told him that as an officer of the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office, he had been watching him, Lassiter, in connection with his official duties, but he found that there was not enough there to make a case. <laughs> of course, that's how these guys roll. Moving along, we see in 2001, the court's decision in the lawsuit launched by Jay Campbell and Kirk Lane 
against Pat Matriciana for the release of the documentary Obstruction of Justice in 1996. We can see that in the court's decision they said that neither Jay Campbell or Kirk Lane had an alibi for the date and time of the deaths, Kevin and Don's. And further from that case, here's a sworn affidavit from Herman Reeves, who at the time of Kevin and Don's murders was a constable, and at the time of his affidavit was a justice of the peace. And let's have a listen to what he had to say about the boys. Don and Kevin had been on the tracks and uh, uh, approached by another group of people, which was uh, Mr. Harmon and four other people, and they ran away from them and got away. And then uh, as the boys were, were trying to call for help or add a phone, uh, that's when Mr. Campbell and Mr. Lane pulled up and apprehended them at that point. Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell pulled up in the car and jumped out to grab the two boys, and one went after Don, one went after Kevin. Kevin, the 22, was leaned up against one of the posts there, and he reached around to get the 22 to come around. When he did, every which officer was grabbing for him, grabbed the, t the 22 from him, and swung around and hit Kevin beside the head with a, a sharp blow enough to knock him unconscious at that point. So, notice he mentioned Harmon as being on the tracks as well? And that's Harmon as in Dan Harmon. And we'll get to him soon enough. But here's an affidavit from that same Campbell and Lane lawsuit against Pat Matriciana, signed by Linda Holcomb in 1998, who was a retired Arkansas State Police officer with 30 years experience. And he states, Linda Ives gave me her copies of what she identified to me as all of the investigative reports contained in the Arkansas State Police file of the Henry Ives murder, meaning Don Henry and Kevin Ives, of course. The stack of documents is approximately 8 inches high and contains reports of numerous interviews, over 240 conducted during this investigation. I am of the opinion that the investigation is incomplete because Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell were not interviewed. Not only do I think they should have been interviewed, but also investigated. So, what do you think of Kirk Lane now? We've had a good look at him and his partner Jay Campbell through the eyes of various reports and testimony from long ago that most people in Arkansas probably don't even realize. And right now, Kirk Lane is the Arkansas State Drug Director. So let's go back to the earliest days and months of the cover-up and have a look at Fami Malik again. He was the Arkansas State Medical Examiner and he did the first autopsy on Kevin and Don and ruled that they smoked 20 joints and fell asleep on the train tracks and didn't hear the train. And from this FBI report, we can see where they say, according to Malik, the victims had been in a marijuana-induced coma. And he was quoted as saying that Kevin and Don were unconscious and in a deep sleep on the railroad tracks under the psychedelic effects of marijuana. So how ridiculous is that? And of course the parents refused to accept that ruling, and the fight for justice began. 17-year-old Kevin Ives and 16-year-old Don Henry were struck by a train near Alexander. The medical examiner has said that the boys were asleep and drugged with marijuana. The parents, however, disputed that claim and persuaded authorities to reopen the case. And as stated earlier, on April 27, 1988, a grand jury was convened to look into the deaths of Kevin and Don. And remember this segment from the Unsolved Mystery Show? Since we filmed this story, Don Henry's T-shirt has been analyzed by an expert pathologist. Tears in the fabric indicate that Don had been stabbed before he was run over by the train.
In light of this new evidence, the grand jury changed this ruling from probable homicide to definite homicide. So the grand jury ruled it was definitely homicide. And that was the results of a second autopsy done by an out-of-state team who discovered that the boys had been killed before they were placed on the tracks. We can see from this FBI report that Dr. Burton, who was the lead pathologist on the second autopsy, said the hardest thing to swallow about this whole case is the stab wound located on Henry that was also located on Henry's shirt. Dr. Burton advised that Henry was not wearing the shirt at the time he was run over by the train. The shirt was located by the side of the track. The shirt was cut by a sharp cutting object with blood located on the shirt fibers. And let's hear from Dr. Burton himself. This information alone would strongly suggest that the boys were injured, uh, rendered unconscious, or even killed prior to their bodies being run over by the train. The deaths of these two boys uh, most probably were not accidental deaths, but that they met their death as a result of injuries inflicted on them by other uh, people or another person. Don Henry's t-shirt has been analyzed by an expert pathologist. Tears in the fabric indicate that Don had been stabbed before he was run over by the train. And have a listen to this. A former employee at the crime lab has said he discovered what appeared to be evidence of a stab wound during the original autopsy, but was told, quote, not to worry about it. Malik has refused all comment. And here's an Arkansas State Police report dated October 17, 1988, which was only five days after the airing of Unsolved Mysteries. And in it are the statements of Steve Cox, who is the ex-employee from the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Mr. Cox stated that he was in charge of doing the examination of the clothing of Kevin Ives and Don Henry. Cox stated that when he examined the t-shirts of the subjects, that the most interesting one was the black t-shirt with the tears on the sides and the linear cuts on the back. Cox stated that he thought this was most peculiar. Cox stated that he brought this to the attention of the administration of the crime lab and advised them that there was possibility of reconstruction. Cox stated that he said he was wanting to do more concerning the testing of these shirts and had set up with Mike Vile to help do a reconstruction on a mannequin to show the wound patterns and to see if it was consistent with any wounds that were found on the bodies of the boys. Mr. Cox stated that he did not get a chance to do any further tests and the tests were not completed. Mr. Cox stated that he had a meeting with Bear Chandler, Ken McCow, and Ralph Turbyfill, and that he was advised that he should not go any further with the testing of those items, and they wanted him to get the report out that day. According to Cox, they said that they were going to back up Malik's report, and that they wanted him, Cox, not to go any further with the testing of the evidence. So Malik was called to appear before the grand jury, where he just continued to spread more of his BS. Was there stabbed? The answer is no, they were not stabbed. Were they dead beforehand? Absolutely no, they were alive. What a piece of work, lying through his teeth. He should have at least been charged with obstruction of justice. You could add withholding evidence, destroying evidence, probably a few other things too. And as time would go on, more of Malik's ridiculous rulings would start to come to light. But yet, time and time again, Malik was protected all the way up the chain. Listen to what his boss, Jocelyn Elders, had to say. What she says is just as outrageous as what Malik said about the boys smoking 20 joints and falling into a psychedelic coma. Based on the facts I have, I really feel that Arkansas owes Dr. Malik 
a great debt and a real apology. Seriously? A great debt and an apology. A great debt and a real apology. I mean, I would have expected a statement coming from Jocelyn Elders to sound something more along the lines of this. The absolutely reprehensible behavior. What kind of a public servant? His, his, his legacy is shrouded! But sadly, instead we got this. Arkansas owes Dr. Malik a great debt and a real apology. Even Bill Clinton was protecting Malik, saying, oh, he was stressed out. And get this, Bill Clinton even tried to give Malik a raise. And what are Governor Bill Clinton's thoughts in this whole situation? Today the governor was asked if Malik should resign. I don't think that's a decision that I should make based on what I now know. Really? I don't think that's a decision I should make? What kind of cow pie governorship y'all running down there anyways? It's unbelievable that Malik gets away with covering up murder. And about the 20 joints. The state medical examiner concluded they had smoked the equivalent of 20 marijuana cigarettes. But as we can see from the FBI report, Dr. Burton reported that the actual amount of marijuana in both Don Henry's and Kevin Ives' system was the equivalent to approximately one joint. So I mean, come on, this guy's withholding evidence of murder, making up total BS stories that are nothing but insulting to the intelligence, and he's protected all the way up the chain to Bill Clinton himself? It's quite clear there's a cover-up going on in full swing. And speaking of cover-up, Let's have a look at the tarp that was covering up the boys, which takes us all the way back to the very beginnings of the cover-up in this entire investigation. The boys were lying exactly parallel on the tracks, their arms straight down by their sides. They were partially covered by a light green tarp. Prosecutor Garrett then focused on the green tarp. Neither boy owned such a tarp. Who had covered them with it, and why? All four of the people on the train who were able to observe the scene prior to the accident stated that the boys were partially covered by a green tarp. I can understand two people laying down on a railroad track. I can understand two people laying down and cover themselves up with a tarp. Where would the tarp come from? I am convinced that the tarp existed. The tarp, however, was never found. So, if we look at the boys on the track's book, and I highly recommend getting a copy of this. It's extremely well sourced and a thrilling read from start to finish as it's fast paced and very emotional as well. And in it we can see where train engineer Stephen Schroyer spoke about the tarp saying there were two boys and then the weapon all very one, two, three and there was a piece of green material very light, very faded. It looked well worn laying out on the boys and it looked like it had been blown back partially exposing them. A disagreement arose over the piece of faded green tarp that Schroyer, Tomlin, and Delamar had seen on top of the boys, and those three of the three engineers from the train. For reasons that none of the crew could fathom, the police appeared reluctant, if not actively resistant, to accept their unanimous reports that such a covering had existed. Tomlin was especially unnerved by the reaction. He had walked to the tracks with his flashlight, looking for that tarp, and had found it and he pointed it out to Deputy Talent. He denied that later, Tomlin recalled. He said I didn't tell him anything about finding the tarp, but I did. 
I am convinced that the tarp existed. The tarp, however, was never found. So the tarp was never found, huh? Paramedics. The paramedics. Yeah, I believe well, that that, the, the paramedics picked up a tarp from the boys. I believe that's that, they had it coming down the railroad anyway. They had they had body bags. Right. Going, walking down through you, picking up different, you know. But separate from the body bag was was a tarp. Right. Right. Remember what color it was? I can't remember. Everything was kind of in a chaos. And, sure. You know, I really didn't pay that 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 thing much attention. Sure. I knew it was uh, some kind of a tarp. You yes, know, sir. it wasn't a bad body bag. Cause they had it, you know, more or less folded. And close as I can remember, they laid it down right there. So what happened to the tarp? Tomlin stated of the time, we all saw the tarp. They were definitely covered up from the waist down to their feet with it. But he, meaning Deputy Chuck Talent, told us it must have been an optical illusion. So all three of the train's crew hallucinated the same thing from different angles? Just like the gun. When he first arrived and we told him there had been a gun, he acted like he didn't know what we were talking about. Then when we were walking down along the tracks, the deputies asked me where this alleged gun was. We had to take them and show them where it was. We had already found that, too. And they might have denied the existence of the gun had it not been captured on video. And then there's the blood. Two emergency medical technicians who arrived on the scene a couple of minutes later immediately found causes of their own for alarm. One of those EMTs was Billy Heath, and he said there was very little blood at the scene and that the blood at the impact site was very dark. He stated the blood was just too dark for him to consider normal. Mr. Heath stated that he did not see any bright blood, and that in his opinion, there should have been some fresh blood at the scene. The other attendant, Shirley Raper, reached the same conclusion, stating, I just observed the one body, and it occurred to me right off that it was strange, because of the lack of blood in the color of the body parts and the color of the blood. The body parts had a pale color to them, like someone that had been dead for some time. Blood from the bodies and on the body parts we observed was a dark color in nature. Due to our training, this would indicate a lack of oxygen present in the blood and could pose a question as to how long the victims had been dead. Deputy Kathy Carty surveyed the scene, listened to the train crew's account, and heard the paramedics' misgivings. She then confronted her superior officers protesting their disregard of the possibility that the boys had been murdered. So it looks like the cover-up began immediately at the scene, at the very start of the so-called investigation. And despite the evidence to the contrary all around them, the authorities on the scene were ordered to treat it as an accident. But we were told to work as an accident, or the investigators were told to work as an accident, and it was uh, not enough time and emphasis put into it right there at the scene. And Sheriff Larry Davis would know they were treating it like an accident because at the scene of the murders, he was there as Reserve Officer Larry Davis. And other officials that were there include Chuck Talent, and if you'll remember, he was the guy that the train engineer, Jerry Tomlin, told about the tarp, but denied its very existence, even though Tomlin found it and pointed it right out to him. So Chuck Talent was conducting the investigation, and assisting at the scene were Lieutenant Ray Richmond, Deputies Kathy Carty, and if you remember her, 
She was the one that confronted her superiors about the evidence they were overlooking or outright denying. And Deputy Pat Hawkins was there, as well as Reserve Officer, later to be Saline County Sheriff, Larry Davis. And I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that in this footage here, we can see Reserve Officer Larry Davis walking along the tracks of the murder scene. Yeah, or the investigators were told to work as an accident. So the investigators were told to work it as an accident. And if we look back to the boys on the tracks, we can see that the Sheriff of Saline County at the time of the murders was Sheriff James Steed, who was Larry Davis's predecessor as Sheriff. And according to then Sheriff James Steed, there was nothing at the scene of the accident that was visible that would make anyone think it was a homicide, is what Steed repeatedly told the Benton paper. That's the reason we do an autopsy, he said. And then he talks about Fami Malik and says, I have complete confidence in him. If he says it, that usually makes it so. So let it be written. So let it be done. Something tells me that old Jimmy got his Egyptians mixed up. And here we can see where Rick Elmendorf, who was the Benton chief of police at the time, say that there was no reason to suspect foul play. Right now, we're not going to speculate on why it happened. So overall, it's pretty clear and easy to see that this wasn't an investigation. It was a cover-up right from the start. Just on the green tarp. Neither boy owned such a tarp. Who had covered them with it? And why? The who that would cover them would be the perpetrators of the murders, obviously. But the why, in case anybody's wondering, leads right back to the very origins of the cover-up. In fact, putting the tarp on the boys was the second act of the cover-up, with the first act of the cover-up being the placing of the boys' bodies on the tracks, of course. And their bodies were placed on the tracks in an attempt to cover up the fact that somebody had murdered them to begin with. And those same somebodies put the green tarp over the boys in an attempt to hide them from the train operators. So that way the train operators would only think that a tarp had blown up on the tracks and that's all they ran over. And you gotta remember too, it's not like running over bodies with a car where there's a thump thump. This is a gigantic Union Pacific freight train. So the perpetrators were hoping that the train operators would think that they only ran over a tarp and not call it in. And within a couple of days, the wildlife would have taken care of the rest. But the tarp partially blew over, revealing Kevin and Don's bodies to the train engineers, and thus marked the beginning of a 30-plus year cover-up. And a cover-up of three-plus decades certainly begs the question of why? Why has this been covered up for so long? There's the questions of who killed Kevin and Don, as well as who put them on the tracks and covered them with the tarp. And we might have already gotten those answers, if not for the 30-year-long-plus cover-up. And in trying to answer the question of why the cover-up has gone on for so long, the answer might just lie within the question of why were the boys killed in the first place? So let's watch the second episode of Unsolved Mysteries on Kevin and Don's case that aired on November 30th, 1988, about six weeks after the first episode. And what they showed was an update segment, which is about three and a half minutes long, and perhaps we may just find some of the answers to the questions we've been asking about the who and why of both the murders and the cover-up. Thank you, Richard, for being with us. 
and hope we helped you in the case. So, there's Richard Garrett again, and a few of the things he said was pretty interesting. Also interesting, if you notice, is that in both episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, neither episode mentions the name Dan Harmon, Richard Garrett's partner, and the special prosecutor appointed to the case. The name Dan Harmon first came to light in 1988. Harmon was a county prosecutor taking on one of the biggest murder cases in the state's history. The deaths of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, two teenagers found dead on a railroad track in Saline County. And actually, Dan Harmon's name first came to the public spotlight in 1984, during the Saline Memorial Hospital scandal, where the longtime hospital administrator, E.F. Black, and his wife, and nine others, were convicted of theft of property and stealing funds and so on. What they weren't convicted of, though, was all the drugs and prostitution that was going on, as evidenced in the video and audio tapes that were subpoenaed. And in that case, we can see that then-deputy Special Prosecutor Dan Harmon was involved. And the judge involved just happened to be John Cole, and we'll see those two names linked over the next 30 years. And the article mentions, numerous rumors regarding explicit videotapes have circulated. And basically what it was was that there was a room set up with a hidden camera, and transactions with drugs and prostitutes and so on would take place in that room while being recorded. And these transactions were rumored to be with high-level authorities, including politicians and law enforcement officials. And then the tapes were kept for future use, as possible blackmailing or controlling material, to be called on when and if needed. And the fate of those video and audio tapes became unknown and were never heard from again, after being subpoenaed by the special prosecutor Joe Harden and Deputy Special Prosecutor Dan Harmon. Anyways, if you'll remember, it was around March 1988 that Dan Harmon and Richard Garrett approached the victim's parents about helping in the case, and Dan Harmon was appointed Special Prosecutor by Judge John Cole. And as noted, we didn't see or hear about the Special Prosecutor in the Unsolved Mystery Shows. And don't forget everything we've learned about the Unsolved Mystery Shows from the FBI documents we've already seen. And certainly don't forget the young men who were murdered after the Unsolved Mysteries episodes aired, or the ones that were killed or missing beforehand. And also remember that it was Benton Chief of Police Rick Almendorf, Judge John Cole, and Dan Harmon, who were at Judge Cole's place when Dan Harmon suggested to Cole that he, Dan Harmon, be named Special Prosecutor. And to remind you, the Benton Chief of Police Rick Almendorf was the one who said way back at the beginning of the cover-up, there was no reason to suspect foul play. And notice that Richard Garrett admitted there was a cover-up? Remember in the segment the parents were very frustrated with the fact that they couldn't get any information. Do you think there's a cover-up? There certainly was a cover-up at first, whether inadvertent uh, or through lack of attention or through just plain stubbornness when this thing first got started. Uh, the parents hollered for six months for someone to help them and for someone to find out what happened to the boys, and no one... So Richard Garrett at least acknowledges the cover-up, and he states how the parents hollered for six months to get help. And no one was more vocal in that hollering than Kevin's mother, Linda Ives. She's the one that led the charge in demanding actual answers. I mean, would you accept hearing from this guy that your son was run over by a train because he smoked 20 joints and fell into a psychedelic coma and couldn't hear the train coming? I know I certainly wouldn't. That's ridiculous. And then six months later, Dan Harmon and Richard Garrett approach, offering help. And though Linda wouldn't know it at the time, she was being surrounded by officials who had no interest in actually solving the case, but rather covering it up. Could anyone else be involved? 
I think there is a distinct possibility that there are other parties involved. I mean, again, it would be as complicated as, as uh, police involvement. As complicated as police involvement, huh? Well, let's have a look at some more of the documents from the FBI's investigation, which officially started in December of 1993 and carried on through 94 and 95. And from the earliest stages of its investigation in January of 94, we see that FBI officials were discussing an alleged cover-up of an investigation of the Ives-Henry homicide, as well as talking about drug dealing by public officials in this county. Then we see in this document, it states, there are numerous references in these pages regarding a drug war going on in Saline County, as well as law enforcement involvement in drug trafficking. And then in this document we can see the FBI states, the Little Rock Division has been gathering intelligence on current political corruption in Saline County, which will parallel the corruption resulting in captioned victims' deaths. And they list that current intelligence. And 32 years later, we're still not allowed to know what's under those redactions. Here's another report that states law enforcement officials alleged to be involved in drug trafficking in Saline County include, and there's yet another huge wall of redactions. And then there's this, which states, the investigation by Little Rock FBI has revealed possible law enforcement involvement in the deaths of Kevin and Don. Or how about this document, which states, since the beginning of the investigation by the special prosecutor, the case has become riddled with rumors and innuendos. Special Prosecutor Harmon and Assistant Richard Garrett requested assistance from the Arkansas State Police, yet continuously withheld information from them. And further, it states, Since the beginning of the FBI investigation, December 1993, numerous individuals interviewed have provided information alleging the involvement of, and I'm pretty sure underneath that redaction you'll see the name of Dan Harmon, and it's in relation to drug trafficking, as well as the involvement in the deaths of captured victims. And then I came across this document as well. And what I found interesting here was that I came across another version of it. And in the second version of it, you can see it's a little bit less redacted than the first one. And when we take a closer look, we can see where it says Prosecutor Dan Harmon, whereas the first document had that area completely blacked out. And in reading it, it says, Investigation at this point in time reveals that a cover-up in the investigation exists with law enforcement involvement, as well as with the... Uh, and again, I'm pretty sure I can fill in the redaction with the special prosecutor appointed to work the case. And that special prosecutor, as we know, is Prosecutor Dan Harmon. And let's have a look at this document, which states, It appears that the special prosecutor appointed in this case, and we know it's Dan Harmon, so I'll just put it there, and they say he may have misused his authority and disregarded other leads that may have assisted efforts to bring this investigation to a logical conclusion. Lastly, it also appears that certain Saline County officials may have conspired to cover up the investigation into the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Certain Saline County officials may have conspired to cover up the investigation. An example of that can be seen in the grand jury looking into the deaths of Kevin and Don, where Judge Cole wouldn't let the grand jury put the facts they learned about their case into their final report. The Saline County Special Grand Jury has now disbanded. Three hours ago, it delivered its final report on the deaths of two teenage boys. But the grand jury was not allowed to do what it wanted. I know that because you could not repeat in the report much of the testimony that you heard and evidence that you received, that you are somewhat frustrated by it. And that's understandable. And what was some of the information that the grand jury wasn't allowed to put into its final report? 
in the final analysis, I know that the grand jury hated to, at this point to give it up because I think the public needs to know about the uh, seriousness of the drug problem here in Saline County and maybe other surrounding counties. And maybe other surrounding counties? And how about surrounding states as well? Saline County in the central Arkansas area is overrun at this time with drug trafficking and it's it's drug trafficking on a high level that, that extends into other states and into other counties. So according to Garrett, central Arkansas is so overrun with drugs that it's pouring out into other states, which echoed the concerns of grand jury foreman Carl Allen and they weren't allowed to enter their findings into the record. And something else to take note of, Richard Garrett's statements on unsolved mysteries was made only about a month before Carl Allen, foreman of the grand jury, made his statements which means they kind of reinforce each other, and there was indeed a massive drug problem in Saline and surrounding counties, as well as other states. And to highlight that, neither Linda Ives, nor pretty much anybody else, would know there was an investigation going on to drugs and corruption in Saline County, secretly being done by the Arkansas State Police and federal officials, and Dan Harmon was heavily on their radar. The investigation was being run by Assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Govar, and by 1990 and 91, it turned into a grand jury investigation, which was still being led by Bob Govar. But in June of 1991, Dan Harmon was cleared of all drug crimes by U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks, who was Bob Govar's boss. But despite that, Dan Harmon's troubles were just beginning. A few months later, he'd be charged for not filing taxes. And he would follow that up by going to jail for not taking a drug test. Then there's the reports from his ex-wives, who say Harmon assaulted them, and even holding the gun to the head of one of them. And let's have a closer look at what Dan Harmon's nefarious ways eventually led to. Harmon resurfaced three years later when he was slapped with four federal charges for tax evasion. Harmon was subsequently thrown in jail for refusing to take a drug test. After 19 days behind bars and an appeals court hearing, he was freed from his first stint behind bars. His freedom continued until July of 1992 when Harmon was found guilty of not filing a tax return for 1988. He was then fined $25 and sentenced to two weeks home detention. Harmon hit headlines once again when four bricks of fake cocaine were found in his ex-wife's apartment. The bricks were evidence belonging to Harmon's 7th District Drug Task Force. Three months later, Harmon's ex-wife, Holly Duvall, accused him of kidnapping and assaulting her. He was jailed again, and this time refused to leave in the hope of getting a speedy trial. It was during this time period he began a hunger strike in jail, underwent a psychiatric evaluation, and even shaved his head. Throughout this time in the spotlight, Harmon often criticized the media and even hit an Arkansas Democrat Gazette reporter. Later that month, he negotiated a plea arrangement. Several of his charges from kidnapping to disorderly conduct were reduced in exchange for his resignation from office. That day came in July of 1996, as Dan Harmon cleared his office and moved to the Gulf. Though Harmon wouldn't get the chance to go to the Gulf. Dan Harmon got out of jail yesterday. A federal grand jury indicted Harmon on 11 counts. He ended up jailed after he refused a drug test, a condition of his freedom until trial. So now he's indicted on 11 counts. 
so much for retiring to the Gulf Coast, huh? And out of those 11 counts, on July 11, 1997, a jury convicted Dan Harmon of racketeering, three counts of conspiracy to extort property, and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute marijuana. And if you look right below, they also convicted a guy named Roger Walls. And we'll have a look at him a little bit later on. After two days of deliberations, the jury found Harmon guilty of five of 11 counts, guilty of drug charges, racketeering, and extortion. And of course, Harmon was defiant right to the end. If they can stick some garbage like this on me, then every American better be scared to death. At any rate, defiant or not, Dan Harmon would finally land behind bars for a long time. Convicted in 1997 on five counts, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and ultimately he would serve nine years of it and get released in 2006. But none of the investigations into drugs and corruption surrounding Saline County were brought up at Harmon's trial. Nor was anything to do with Kevin and Don's murders brought up at Harmon's trial. And then, just under four years after getting out of prison, Harmon would get busted again for drugs in 2010. We can see former Saline County prosecutor Dan Harmon has been arrested for selling drugs to an undercover officer near a school. It is tonight's top story. Police say the six-month investigation that landed Harmon behind bars also led to the arrest of a dozen other people in Grant County. Police say it's a drug operation ranging from cocaine to painkillers. Former Saline County prosecutor Dan Harmon is back behind bars, barely four years after serving time for extortion, racketeering and drug conspiracy from a 1997 conviction. Police say Harmon was illegally selling prescription drugs near Sheridan School. Harmon is among the last few alleged drug dealers taken off Sheridan streets after a six-month investigation. Harmon lives in Saline County, but the investigation led police here to a traffic stop. Police say they found several drug items in his car. Harmon's passenger, a well-known drug dealer, is also now helping authorities. Assistant Chief Brent Cole says the former prosecutor is facing several felony charges that could land him in prison, this time for life. So selling dope near a school. What a piece of work. So there goes Harmon again, back behind bars. For drugs again. But just like his old ways in the early 1990s, he managed to slimeball his way out of the charges. Then we see Harmon's name in the courts again in 2012, in the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, where we see the plaintiff is Jesse Hill, and he was convicted of murder about 20 years ago or so. And among the names in his suit are three very familiar ones, John Cole, Dan Harmon, and Richard Garrett. I haven't really followed that case, so I don't really know the specifics, but I do believe that Jesse Hill lost his appeal. At any rate, after everything we've seen so far, and there's more coming, when looking back at the 1990-91 grand jury investigation led by Bob Govar, Harmon was cleared of drug crimes? It wasn't the grand jury that cleared Harmon of drug crimes. It was U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks who stepped in and closed it all down. And that was that, everybody go home. And none of the grand jury or U.S. Attorney investigative materials found their way into Dan Harmon's 1997 conviction. Neither did three other investigations make their way into Harmon's trial. There was the 1997th Judicial Drug Task Force investigation, followed by a 1993 investigation by a detective in the Sheriff's Office, which led to the FBI entering the picture in December of 1993, which is the investigation that most of the documents we've been looking at comes from. And like the 1991 grand jury investigation, 
or the 1988 grand jury investigation into Kevin and Don's murders, as well as the so-called state medical examiner's investigation and the original, quote, investigation at the scene of the tracks. These three investigations were also shut down and covered up. So let's have a look at what happened. And we'll start with the 7th Judicial District Drug Task Force, which was created in 1990 and was led by Celine Deputy Prosecutor Jean Duffy. Jean was asked to head the task force in March of 1990 and begin assembling her team of investigators. And the task force was official in April when then 7th Judicial District Prosecuting Attorney Gary Arnold signed off on the paperwork. And that would be the one and the same Judge Gary Arnold today. And for this investigation, and thanks to a series of interviews that Jean did in the mid to late 1990s, we can let Jean herself tell the story of what happened to her investigation. And have a listen to the instructions given to her by her boss, Gary Arnold, on Jean's very first day of work in the new position. Gary Arnold came into my office, stood in front of my desk, looked me straight in the face and said, Jean, you are not to use the drug task force to investigate any public official. He turned on his heel and marched out. Now, as startling as that statement might sound, I really didn't think that it was going to pose any kind of problem because at that time I didn't have any indication that there was any public official in our judicial district who was involved in drugs. And that would be a normal thought. I mean, you wouldn't go into the job expecting the drug scene to be polluted with officials. But what did her team of investigators quickly begin to discover? When I had hired seven undercover officers, and they went, of course, had to start street level buying first, and um, they couldn't get much above street level buying before they started connecting public officials to uh, protecting uh, drug dealers to actually being involved in the drug dealing operation themselves. And the person whose name came up immediately and most frequently was uh, Dan Harmon. Go figure, Dan Harmon and his buddy Richard Garrett. And don't forget what her boss Gary Arnold said to her about not investigating public officials. But despite that, Jean had other options. I knew at the time that there had been a federal investigation going on for about nine months into the public official corruption in Saline County, which was being headed by Assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Govar. So Govar seemed to be the likely person to take this information to, which I did, and he was appreciative because it supported the information that he had already been gathering plus added to and gave him new information to uh, broaden his investigation. Now keep in mind this is 1990. Jean thought that feeding the information to Golvar, who was leading the federal investigation, was a good idea. And under normal circumstances, it probably was the right thing to do. But as we've seen in this case, the circumstances are anything but normal. But of course we have the luxury of hindsight now, whereas back then, Jean had no idea that in June of 1991, Govar's investigation would be completely shut down by Chuck Banks, as we saw earlier. But going back to the summer of 1990, one of Jean's investigators would come with a request that would later prove to be quite shocking. 
Three months after the drug task force was up and running, one of my undercover officers asked if he could open a, the train deaths case. The train deaths was described as Arkansas's most famous unsolved mystery. It had already aired on two separate filming episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, it had gotten national attention. It, there had at that point probably been a thousand newspaper articles in Arkansas written about it. Um, there were people who had been turning up dead who were possible witnesses. It didn't occur to me that it was appropriate for our drug task force to reopen the case of the boys on the track until one of my undercover officers came to me and told me that not only was the case drug-related, but it was also solvable. He asked permission to investigate, and I agreed to that and told him that we would take our information then to Bob Govar. So the Drug Task Force was not only finding links to public officials, including Dan Harmon, but now they were also hot on the trail of Kevin and Don's murders as well. And let's have a look at what else they were discovering. There were drug drops, apparently, coming from airplanes in that area. And these uh, drug drops from airplanes had virtually not been investigated by any of the law enforcement agencies in our district. And he thought that was something that our task force needed to look into. He said the drug drops were being made in the exact vicinity where Kevin and Don had been murdered. Scott um, determined that these low-flying airplanes were dropping packages. We also developed an informant who was confessed drug smuggler who told us that she had actually picked up uh, a package of cocaine from that vicinity. And that informant was Charlene Wilson. And before we hear from her, let's hear Jean Duffy's thoughts on Charlene Wilson, or at least her credibility as a witness anyways. Charlene was recommended to our task force as an informant from a DEA who had used her as an informant and also from at least two other law enforcement agencies that had used her as an informant and said that she was reliable. I. Uh, used Charlene and she proved to be very, very reliable. There was not one bit of information that she ever gave me that didn't pan out. Something else to note as well is that Charlene Wilson is also Dan Harmon's ex-girlfriend. And on December 10th, 1990, Charlene Wilson was subpoenaed to the grand jury investigation that Bob Gover was running. The same one we looked at that was shut down six months later in June of 1991 by U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks. And a lot of the things in Charlene's testimony to that grand jury were quite shocking and explosive. Robert Govar and Chuck Banks were the U.S. attorneys for the District of Arkansas at that time. I was subpoenaed to testify on behalf of the drug trafficking and the cartel, more or less is what it was, uh, that had to do with Dan Harmon and what I call company because there are a whole... Uh, there's a whole bunch of them that are involved. I was asked quite in depth about the drug trafficking that went on with Dan Harmon, um, Mr. Clinton, Roger Clinton. 
I was there, we're coming there with Roger one night, and back in the um, back part of the mansion there, there's kind of like a living quarters type thing, and uh, we would all get together out there and um, do cocaine, you know, and uh, no, Miss Clinton wasn't there at the time. And again, with hindsight, should we really be surprised? And there was a whole bunch of people that were testifying to the same kind of things at that grand jury. And not just at the grand jury, but it was also a subject of discussion amongst the professionals in around the Little Rock area, too. Dr. Suen, uh, S-U-E-N, a doctor at the medical center here in Little Rock, has taken care of Bill Clinton for his sinus problems, which may indeed be drug-related to cocaine use um, as they destroy the sinus passages. Governor Bill Clinton was taken into the hospital, I believe it was the medical center, on at least one or two occasions for cocaine uh, abuse and overdosage in which he actually had to be cared for at the hospital. So again, looking back from three decades later, is it really surprising? If you remember from part two of this series, Murder on the Tracks, the story of Kevin Ives and Don Henry continues, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you watch it as we took a really deep look into Arkansas of the 1980s and saw how then-Governor Bill Clinton and almost everybody around him were up to their noses in mountains of cocaine. But anyways, back to Gene Duffy's 1990 investigation, what happened in June of that year would mark the beginning of the dismantling and cover-up of that investigation, as well as a serious and vicious attack campaign leveled at Gene Duffy. So in June of 1990, Dan Harmon became the district's prosecutor-elect the first news conference or news interview that he gave, he used the entire interview to uh, begin to discredit me. He immediately began a uh, media crusade against me. First of all, using uh, the Benton Courier and Linda Hollenbeck as the reporter, and he also used the uh, Arkansas Democrat and Doug Thompson as the reporter. And for some reason, these two people would write anything that he said to them. They didn't care anything about substantiating anything he said. They just reported it. In the next five months, there were over 200 newspaper articles crucifying my reputation. Not one thing that they alleged was truthful. They had me stealing federal funds. They had me making illegal arrests. Um, every allegation that would, might destroy my credibility was made. I could have played the same game Harmon was playing and reported to the media the information that I had about him and truth would have been on my side, but this would have jeopardized the federal investigation. And I wasn't so concerned about public opinion of me because I felt like in the end all the truth was going to come out because at this point I still had faith in the judicial system. The people who were uh, immediately launched a campaign to discredit me and uh, disband my task force was led by Dan Harmon. And of course it became apparent almost immediately that Dan Harmon was a key player in the drug, act, drug smuggling, drug um, uh, trafficking activity. And ultimately Dan Harmon's smear campaign would work out in his favor. The combination of the relentless media attacks, and along with Jean Duffy's silence, instead choosing to give her investigative files over to Bob Govar's investigation, 
would lead to the complete shutdown of Gene Duffy's task force. The members of my board of directors had warned me for several weeks that they were not going to be able to continue to support me in the face of all of the bad publicity. And in fact, when they did fire me finally in November, it was not because of anything that I had done wrong, but because I had become, in their opinion, ineffective because of all of the bad press. I had seven undercover officers working for me. They, they were family men who needed jobs. Five of them resigned in protest to my firing. So even though they managed to get Jean's task force investigation shut down, Jean herself still had all the investigative files and contacts with all the witnesses, which she was sharing with Bob Govar's federal grand jury investigation. And one of those witnesses, remember, was Charlene Wilson, who testified on December 10, 1990 at that grand jury, which apparently triggered the beginning of the dismantling of that investigation. The very afternoon that Charlene testified before the federal grand jury, that the whole investigation started to unravel. I had taken in four informants to be interviewed uh, to testify before the federal grand jury in Saline County Affairs. They were actually never interviewed and were in fact badgered and harassed and told to leave. So now, with the federal grand jury investigation being dismantled, Jean would find herself targeted by Judge John Cole and Dan Harmon, who issued subpoenas for all her investigative files, as well as Jean herself. A subpoena that Jean wisely ignored, which would lead John Cole to issue warrants for Jean's arrest. Why two felony warrants were issued for my arrest when the warrants were illegal? Because there was no felony charge. I, I knew there had to be some very powerful players behind what was happening. I refused to answer the subpoena because in the first place it was absurd for Dan Harmon to be conducting a grand jury investigation against himself. But if I had brought in any information about him, that would have put the very lives probably of the informants and witnesses in jeopardy. And I was certainly not willing to do that. If I had gone in and refused to turn any information over to them, I would have been jailed in Hot Spring County. And my mother received a call from a dispatcher in Hot Spring County that said that she overheard a conversation among the officials there that if I were arrested, that I would be killed in Hot Spring County Jail. So I refused to answer, and when Judge Cole issued a felony warrant for my arrest for failing to appear, then I left the jurisdiction. And that wise move probably saved Duffy's life. I mean, without a doubt, these guys were trying to get all her information, and her, silenced. And a few months later, as we know, Chuck Banks would officially close down the investigation and clear Dan Harmon, as Jean could only watch from the sidelines, in hiding. I didn't understand then why uh, the U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks shut down the federal investigation and cleared Dan Harmon. Uh, and this was in spite of that grand jury unanimously wanting to indict Dan Harmon. Three grand jurors contacted me, two of them indirectly and one of them directly, to inform me that they were ready to hand down indictments. 
but they were informed by Chuck Banks that the grand jury was being dismissed and that no indictments would be sought. They were not told that they had the authority to hand indictments down on their own. In my opinion, Chuck Banks should have been charged with obstructing justice. Of course, now I look back on this chain of events and realize that I likely caused the shutdown of my own investigation. It's clear to me that the turning point was when I gave Chuck Banks the information uh, developed by my task force that the boys were killed because they had stumbled upon a large shipment of drugs dropped from an airplane. In my heart, I feel that that was a red flag that caused Chuck Banks to close the investigation down before it led to Mina. And Mina, of course, is Mina, Arkansas, and more directly, the Mina Airport, which is where this man, Barry Seal, the biggest cocaine smuggler in U.S. history, set up shop from 1982 until his murder in 1986. And guess who else we see back then? Asa Hutchinson, governor of Arkansas, which is Bill Clinton's old job. Only back then, Asa was the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas, which means that Mina Airport fell under his jurisdiction, and he was U.S. Attorney for that jurisdiction from 1982 to near the end of 1985. And during that entire time, Barry Seal was running his operations right in Asa's backyard, with no indictments, no arrests, and no convictions. What a coincidence. But we'll come back to that a little bit later. But going back to the Eastern District of Arkansas and the 7th District, to better understand the time frames and happenings of what went on, with Dan Harmon becoming prosecutor, he was elected prosecutor in June of 1990, and that's when he would begin a smear campaign against Gene Duffy's task force, but he wouldn't officially take office until January of 1991, and by that point he had already got Gene Duffy's task force successfully shut down, and now he was working with Judge John Cole to target Gene Duffy, while at the same time Gene Duffy was given assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Govar all of the files and witnesses from her investigation. So thanks to Chuck Banks in June of 1991, Dan Harmon had free reign to continue his criminal enterprise until October of 1996 as Saline County's prosecuting attorney, which also meant that he was in charge of the Drug Task Force. And looking ahead to when they finally convicted Dan Harmon and threw him behind bars, remember when I said would come back to Roger Walls? Well, he's the guy that Dan Harmon placed to be in charge of the Drug Task Force, which was Gene Duffy's job. How do you like that? And there he is, convicted alongside Dan Harmon. And I mean, at this point, come on. After everything we've seen from both Gene Duffy and Dan Harmon, who are you more likely to believe? Even though I'll still put my money on Gene, they still ran her right out of the state. So let's lay the bricks to Roger Walls a bit, shall we? And it says here he was convicted of conspiracy to extort property. But we can see in his original charges, he was charged with conspiracy to manufacture drugs, two counts of extorting money, making a false statement to a financial institution, money laundering, and racketeering. And that's the guy that Dan Harmon put in charge of the drug task force. But what happened to some of Walls' charges? Well, we see that he no longer faced charges of money laundering and making false statements to a financial institution. And that was thanks to Bill Clinton-appointed U.S. Attorney Paula Casey, who said, we decided it was the right thing to do. Meanwhile, five months later during his trial, a meth dealer testified that Walls sold him chemicals to make the drug in 1994. 
So imagine that. That's the guy that Dan Harmon put as head of the drug task force. And if you look into it, Harmon's 1997 conviction contained nothing that happened from the late 1980s, including all the murders. And if you're wondering why that is, we can see the answer in the boys on the tracks, in that the indictment in Dan Harmon's 1997 conviction only went back to August 1991, two months after U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks cleared Dan Harmon in that earlier probe. And below we see the obvious question at hand. Are we to believe Dan Harmon was clean in June, but dirty in August? Now let's have a quick look at the next two investigations that were also missed by this 1997 conviction. In 1993, Celine Detective John Brown started investigating the case. And check out how similar his investigation mirrored that of Gene Duffy's three years earlier in 1990. My uh, immediate supervisor, who was a lieutenant over the Saline County Criminal Investigation Division, took me for a ride that lasted approximately one hour. Um, during this ride to literally nowhere, uh, it appeared the whole purpose was to tell me to leave the case alone. He said things like, there's not anything to this. Um, this could have been an accident. It's going to bring you a lot of grief if you continue on and, and do this. And, and in the end, he finally said, you know, John, you really need to leave this alone. So right off the bat, he's being warned and told not to bother with the case, don't look into it, and so on. It became obvious that uh, once I started going through the case file, it had been robbed of most of the pertinent evidence. Uh, no crime scene photographs, a list of evidence was not present, the things you would expect to find. And we see that in the FBI files, which state, Saline County officials are baffled that some of the original evidence collected during 1987 is no longer available, and that files are missing. Or this FBI report that states, Evidence from this case to include a sketch of the accident scene, cigarette butts left at the accident site, pictures of the crime scene, plus the original case files are missing. And something else to take note of this report. Look at how much of it's redacted. Almost 32 years after the murders of Kevin and Don, the authorities that be still deem this necessary to be classified. And like Jean Duffy would find in her investigation, John Brown would find that Kevin and Don's murders were drug-related and related to the MENA airport. The first indication I had that MENA may tie to the death of these two kids was through an audio tape provided to me by Russell Welch, an Arkansas State Police investigator assigned to MENA. The tape was of a confidential informant inside the Federal Corrections facility. That tape would allege that Don Henry and Kevin Ives were killed because of a connection to Mena, Arkansas. An actual report was generated by Saline County Sheriff's Office in 1987 and in 88 of people complaining of the planes flying over the tracks at approximately 100 feet above ground level with their lights out at night. Just like what Gene Duffy had discovered, even the calls from local residents about the low-flying airplanes. And speaking of which, check this out. I have interviewed five pilots, four of which can verify the A-12 location being the tracks just west of Little Rock, Arkansas, where these two kids' bodies were found. And John Brown would also encounter Charlene Wilson and hear from Dan Harmon. 
I run across a young lady named Charlene Wilson who told a horror story that I didn't really believe at the time. So I started searching for evidence to substantiate just part of what she had said. Herman went ballistic. He called, he threatened me, threatened Sheriff Pridgen, threatened Captain Gene Donham, the chief deputy. All because I talked to this one woman. Does all that sound familiar? There's Harmon again, still a prosecutor, threatening a whole new set of sheriffs and detectives. And there's Charlene Wilson again as well, only this time she drops a bombshell. The people at the track that night, to my knowledge, were Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, Larry Rochelle. I do know that the boys were watching the drop site, okay? and they got curious as to what was being dropped there. I know that Dan Harmon went down there, because I was down the road from there, sent an automobile. I do know that a drop was made. I've uh, absolutely 100% unequivocally made there that night. She also wrote out a confession letter in front of three officials on May 28, 1993 again naming Dan Harmon and Keith McCaskill, among others, as being at the tracks that night. And as we saw earlier, by December of 1993, the FBI officially entered the case. And by this point in time, Jean Duffy and her family had relocated to Texas, John Cole and Dan Harmon were still doing their thing, and John Brown was investigating away. And to note, John Brown and Jean Duffy had never talked to each other by this point. Nor did John Brown have any of Gene Duffy's investigative files, which paralleled his own investigation. And also to note, Linda Ives and Gene Duffy had never spoken to each other by this point either. But Linda was well aware of what Dan Harmon actually was by now. She had started coming to that realization in the lead-up to Chuck Banks clearing Harmon in 1991. And during the FBI's investigation, they completely cleared Gene Duffy of all the BS charges that John Cole and Dan Harmon had brought up, and asked her to come back and help with their investigation and John Brown and Jean Duffy would meet for the first time. During that meeting, she would share with me all of her files. At that time, I realized why I had not been allowed to look at the 1990 federal grand jury investigation that was conducted during the time frame she was still in Arkansas. It was then I realized why she was really run out of town. It was real shocking to find out that what Jean Duffy found in 1990 were the same things I was finding in 1994 drug trafficking that involved political figures, law enforcement officers, involved in the cover-ups, uh, cover-ups of deaths. Four years later, separately and independently from anything she ever done, I tracked almost the same thing identical that she did. Right straight to law enforcement personnel, right straight to the state capitol. And it was in December of 1993 seven months after Charlene Wilson's confession, that a huge bombshell would land on the case, which is what would trigger the FBI to officially start entering the case. Uh, Linda Ives turned this witness over to a local investigator who took him to the FBI. The FBI immediately put this witness into protective custody, gave him a polygraph test, which he passed, and opened their investigation. We uh, didn't realize there was anybody else out there at first. We were just, like I said, goofing off. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, 
we came upon, or didn't really come upon, we noticed there were people on the track. So a flashlight come on and then go back off. They weren't looking in our direction, but we could see the light. And so we kind of quieted down and snuck up a little bit closer to see what was going on. And there was five individuals uh, standing on the tracks. One thing that struck my curiosity is uh, at the time my mother was dating uh, an attorney named Dan, uh, Dan Harmon. I knew him well enough to recognize him. There were uh, two more individuals that uh, a few minutes after we got there uh, were walking down the railroad tracks that had a rifle uh, and what looked to be a flashlight. And they were more or less kind of minding their own business. Uh, and when they realized someone else was on the tracks, uh, they stopped and was fixing to turn around when someone, uh, or Danny, motioned for them to come closer uh, over to where they were. Uh, they hesitated and uh, eventually ended up uh, walking on towards the rest of the group. While my head was turned, I heard a, what sounded like a gunshot, a soft flash, as you would expect with a gunshot at night. We were pretty much terrified and bolted and ran. Would you say you're... 100% sure? I was 200% sure it was Danny Harmon, without any doubt. Without any doubt. Of course, now I realize what was the basis for Dan Harmon's viciousness against me and determination that I be uh, not allowed to do my job. I now know that Dan Harmon was on the tracks with the boys the night that they were murdered. The fact is, we know who killed these kids. The problem is now, how long are we gonna wait? How long is it gonna take before we make the decision that we're gonna indict the murderers? And we're also gonna indict the people that covered this thing up. Paula Casey, the U.S. District Attorney in Little Rock has said, we're not gonna talk about airplane drops. Why? That's why they were killed. How long do they have to go before justice prevails in Arkansas? How long indeed? It's been almost 32 years now. So now in 1994, the FBI has taken over the case. And let's go back and have a look at some more FBI documents and see what they found. And here we can see Little Rock to date has gotten two positive polygraphs, which have implicated someone in the death of captioned subjects or this one that states, at that point, evidence from the Henry Ives case began to be misplaced. More missing evidence. And here's an interesting one that says, Redacted told me in the Redacted, he knew who killed the boys on the track, Don Henry and Kevin Ives, that the boys interrupted a drug deal, that they tried to scare the boys from telling anyone. While doing that, they killed one of the boys and felt they had to kill the other and did. This will identify and get me killed. Redacted told me all of this in front of the woman he... something. My life is in your hands. These murders must stop. Then there's this file that states, Captioned victims are believed to have witnessed a drug deal involving prominent individuals of Saline County, Arkansas. And in this one we see, Since the case involved public corruption, it will be necessary to document any visits from counsel that Redacted may be seeking. And in this one we see, Saline County is basically a hub for illegal activity, which consists of drug trafficking. 
And here we see the investigation taking note that as a result of numerous homicides surrounding the incident related to the boys, individuals are very scared to talk to anyone due to fear for their own life. And have a look at this one. Judge John Cole was paid to appoint Dan Harmon a special prosecutor in the Ives Henry case. Can it get more obvious than that? Here's one that shows a little bit about how Dan Harmon and Roger Rawls were running things, which states, current intelligence revealed that Saline County Drug Task Force, some of whom are subjects in this matter, will make road stops on drug dealers passing through Saline County. And this is the drug task force that's under Roger Walls. The dealers are taken to the prosecutor's office, and that would be Dan Harmon's office, where they are stripped of all drugs and monies and then taken to jail. Once in jail, a public defender will visit the individuals where a deal is cut. The deal usually involves a financial payment in exchange for the dropping of charges. So this is what was going on when Dan Harmon became prosecutor in 1991, and on. In this document, investigators from the case have told me that it pertains to Officer Danny Allen's polygraph, and as such, we can unredact it accordingly. And we can see that for information of Little Rock, Danny Allen was polygraphed regarding knowledge of caption case on Thursday, December 15, 1994. Danny Allen, at the time of this incident, August 23, 1987, was a, and I'm going to guess under there that it says, Bryan County Deputy Sheriff, who reported to the scene of the train deaths. And something very interesting about that I was told, is that Danny Allen's wife gave a statement that Danny Allen had been out all night, and before reporting to the scene of the deaths, stopped in at home to change his clothes with the inference being that there were blood on his clothes because he was already at the tracks earlier, as the rumors around town were suggesting. Anyhow, going further down in the document, and you might notice this is one of the unsolved mystery documents that we looked at earlier, so look at how much information we're getting out of this one document, and imagine, there's thousands of them. But anyways, we can unredact a bunch more and have a look at what it says. On the polygraph, Alan was asked specific questions regarding caption subjects deaths. Although Allen proclaimed that he knew nothing, the results of his polygraph clearly indicated deception. Special Agent Redacted reported that Allen indicated strong deception regarding knowledge of who killed the boys, as well as who put the boys on the tracks. Danny Allen did advise Special Agent Redacted that he believed Special Prosecutor Dan Harmon to be involved in the deaths of the boys. Here's another document that's kind of astonishing. When the Unsolved Mysteries tape was made, the individuals featured on the tape were, and they've got that blacked out, but we know at the least that Richard Garrett and Danny Allen were featured on that original tape, and we see right below the FBI says, it is now believed that all of these individuals are connected in the cover-up investigation regarding the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. And we find something interesting in this document as well, which states, in closing, Redacted advised that individuals in the United States Attorney's Office and that would be for the Eastern District of Arkansas, to include former U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks and Assistant U.S. Attorney Robert Govar, have numerous friends in Saline County. And would those friends include Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell, perhaps? It's a valid question, because now with hindsight, we can see back in 2007, during Jay Campbell's trial, from a writer who was covering it, he states, Finally, Bob Govar's quarter-century friendship with Jay Campbell which would put that friendship starting around the early 1980s. And remember, it was Assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Govar, working under then U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks, that Jean Duffy was given all of her information to. 
And all along, Bob Govar is good friends with Jay Campbell. And how good of friends were they? Well, let's have a look at one of Bob Govar's relatives and what they have to say. And while Facebook, of course, isn't exactly an FBI report, I do know the person. And I've done some redactions here for some privacy purposes. And what they say is very interesting. They say that he, Bob Govar, was 100% in on the entire cover-up. As he was investigating Jay Campbell and Kirk Lane during the weekdays back then, and on the weekends, he was going down to the deer camp that he and Jay and Kirk all hunted at together, and spending the entire weekend, every weekend, hunting and getting drunk with both of them. And then the following Mondays, he would go back to Little Rock and, quote, investigate them some more. Oh, and during the week, while he was investigating Jay and Kirk, he would meet them after work at Keith McCaskill's bar and get drunk with them there as well. So yes, I know Robert J. Govar all too well, and he disgusts me. And I won't even go into the shenanigans that he got into in Lone Oak with Jay Campbell back in 2007. He was a despicable human being. And though Bob Govar's relative on Facebook said they won't even go into the, quote, shenanigans that he got into in Lone Oak with Jay Campbell back in 2007, I most certainly will, of course. And I'll just give you the quick version, as you can pause and read the frames for yourself if you like. And like Dan Harmon ten years earlier, in 2006, Jay Campbell was arrested on multiple felony charges relating to drugs and theft and so on. And in 2007, he was convicted on 28 charges and given 40 years in jail. And in 2009, he won his appeal, but then he was immediately charged for drugs and theft again. And by February 2010, he was given 15 more years in jail. But he was also credited the 36 months time already served and was eligible for parole later on that same year in 2010. But anyways, looking at the Arkansas leader in 2007 during Jay Campbell's first trial, we can see down below where they say, Golvar is unhappy with our coverage of the Campbell trial, which revealed that the former chief criminal prosecutor, who was Bob Golvar, used Act 309 prison laborers to clear a lot for his new home. Golvar testified he didn't know he was using Act 309 inmates when he asked Campbell to clear Golvar's land. Whether Bob Golvar knew or not is pretty much irrelevant to the point here. The point here is that it's quite obvious that Bob Golvar and Jay Campbell were indeed good friends. And what the other people have said, including his relatives, has some validity to it. It would seem that almost all the officials in Saline and surrounding counties would be interconnected together. And going back to the FBI files, this one states, Investigation has revealed that law enforcement officials in the Little Rock area may have been involved in captioned homicide. And this one mentions regarding an alleged cover-up of the investigation of the Ives-Henry homicide in Saline County. And in this one we see, this alleged cover-up supposedly involves law enforcement and political officials. And then there's this one that says, the investigation by Little Rock FBI has revealed possible law enforcement involvement in the deaths of captioned victims. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Well, how about this one, where the FBI says, It is very apparent that a well-orchestrated conspiracy surrounds captioned case. Or this one that says, Investigation at this point in time reveals that a cover-up in the investigation exists with law enforcement. And here's yet another one that states, Lastly, it also appears that certain Saline County officials may have conspired to cover up the investigation into the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. So, with everything we've looked at, and keep in mind we've only looked at a fraction of what the FBI has, 
as they have around 15,000 documents relating to the case, and we haven't even looked at a hundred of them. But what we have seen paints a pretty clear picture, and you can only begin to imagine just how much nefarious stuff they discovered during their investigation. And what did that incorruptible and much vaunted vanguard of law enforcement known as the FBI do with their investigation? Well, they did what the rest of them did, and covered it up. As we can see from this document later on in the investigation, they ask, I would like to request opinions as to the following. Whether continued investigation appears to be warranted. And I think my opinion on that, after everything we've seen, would be an absolute yes. Continued investigation does indeed appear to be warranted. And then he follows that up with, and, if so, the nature of the FBI's jurisdiction in this matter. And that in itself makes me wonder, this guy works for the FBI? First of all, after two years of investigation, now you're worried about jurisdiction? But secondly, to make it simple, the boys were put on the railroad tracks. That makes it federal, which in turn means that the FBI absolutely had jurisdiction. And that was written by special agent in charge, Ivy and C. Smith. And then we see that he follows it up by saying, Based on the foregoing, it is my recommendation that the FBI conduct no further investigation into this matter. Like seriously, are they for real? They also reportedly told Linda Ives, Kevin's mother, that a crime was not committed. But how do we know for sure that the FBI intended to cover it all up? What well, we can see here in a letter to the FBI from Mary Lavera in 1997, and she stated right to the FBI that Mr. I.C. Smith, the agent in charge of your office in Little Rock, has informed me that the FBI in Arkansas has investigated the deaths of two boys, Don Henry and Kevin Ives, that occurred in Saline County in 1987. With this letter, I am formally requesting access to all of the agency's files relating to those deaths. And what was the agency's response to Mary Leverett? In going through the records for Kevin Ives, the FBI stated, a search located no records responsive. And likewise, going through the records for Don Henry, they state, a search located no records responsive, in a pretty much identical letter except for the names and numbers. So imagine that. Now the FBI is saying that they have no records. So Mary Lavera writes back, saying, In December 1997, I submitted a Freedom of Information request to your office, seeking information about the FBI's investigation into the 1987 deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives of Saline County, Arkansas. In January 1998, I was notified in writing that FBI headquarters had located no records responsive to that request. This came as a surprise since I.C. Smith, the former special agent in charge in Little Rock had told me on several occasions that his office was investigating the case. It was he who suggested I submit the Freedom of Information request. And we just had a look at two different documents that were written by I.C. Smith, or Ivy and C. Smith. But the FBI was busy telling Meryl Lavera that they found no records responsive to her request. Well then what the hell were all of these? By this point, the FBI had already amassed thousands of documents, and were choosing to keep them hidden. Eventually the FBI would find some, as we've seen, but the games would still go on, as we can see here from another response by the FBI to Mary Lavera, stating, A search revealed another main file which may be responsive to your request. However, this file is inadvertently being misplaced, and or misfiled at FBI headquarters. Really. They found another main file, but naturally, it's been misplaced, 
and or misfiled. And should that be surprising, really? There's been a whole bunch of that going on since the investigation began. And this response from the FBI to Mary Lavera was in the year 2000. So, let's fast forward to the year 2012, and Linda Ives's lawyer, R. David Lewis, again sent out a series of Freedom of Information requests. And this is one to the Bryant Police Department, where he states, Please consider this a Freedom of Information request for all records pertaining to Kevin Ives. And not only that, he was also requesting all records regarding MENA Airport drug trafficking as they relate to Barry Seal. And the Bryant Police Department responded, We do not have any records relevant to the death of Kevin Ives, which occurred on August 23, 1987. Then they state, There was an incident on August 17, 1987, involving Danny Allen. And you have to wonder, why would you bring that up? And there is a reason for it, and it goes back to the original cover-up. It's one of the original stories they were trying to peddle during the original investigation. First they were floating the idea that the boys committed suicide, and realizing that no one was going to buy that one, this is one of the stories that came out as well, where apparently Danny Allen allegedly was shot at by a man in camouflage, and the suggestion was that this wanderer killed the boys. So he hung around in the woods for a week, like Bigfoot, waiting for his chance to strike? Sorry, still not buying it. Interesting though that 25 years later, in 2012, that they're still trying to peddle this BS in a Freedom of Information request on Kevin Ives. But considering they brought Danny Allen up, let's not forget the FBI polygraphs he took and failed, and how in the one FBI report, it states Danny Allen reported to the scene of the train deaths. So at the least, where are those reports? Or was he just there for some moral support and bring some coffees maybe? And of course, as noted by the FBI, the Saline County Sheriff's Department also reported to the scene. And here's their response to Linda Ives and Mr. Lewis's FOIA requests in 2012. And you'll notice that the sheriff at the time was Bruce Pennington. And if you watch Murder on the Tracks Part 3, The Sheriffs, you'll know that Sheriff Bruce Pennington would be another official involved in the early investigations that would go to jail in 2015. But what was the response in 2012? Well, they said then that this case is still an open murder investigation. Therefore, the Saline County Sheriff's Office cannot release anything involving this case other than the incident report. So 25 years later, this is still an open murder investigation? And who was doing the so-called investigating at this point? And that was Lieutenant Mike Frost of the Criminal Investigation Division, who again, as we saw in Murder on the Tracks Part 3, the Sheriff's, would also get arrested along with his boss, Bruce Pennington. And here's something very interesting as well. Bruce Pennington was facing up to a possible 10 years or more, I believe. But he only got one year in prison and some suspended release time and some fines. And the judge in his case was Gary Arnold. The same Gary Arnold who was prosecutor of Saline County that told Jean Duffy on her first day as head of the drug task force not to investigate any local officials. And as for Mike Frost, he would get 12 months probation. And the judge in his case was Gary Arnold. So are you beginning to understand how it works a bit more now? These guys weren't interested in what they called an open murder investigation. They were too busy being embroiled in their own corruption. And again, go watch Murder on the Tracks Part 3, The Sheriffs, where we have an in-depth look at every sheriff from the time Kevin and Don were killed up to present day. And you can see for yourself why this still remains a, quote, open murder investigation. Here's a 2013 response to the request from the Department of Justice. And in it they say, 
Our office responded no records to your Freedom of Information request. However, there was a typographic error in our response, which stated that the search was conducted in the District of Indiana. Indiana? Really? But rest assured they said that the search was actually conducted in the Eastern District of Arkansas. And of course the Department of Justice has no records. I wonder what they're going to come up with next. Maybe something like, um, we're sorry, we gave your information to Monkey A, and it should have been entered by Monkey G. So let's have a look at why there's been a massive cover-up in the murders of Kevin Ives and Don Henry. And to understand why they were murdered in the first place, Kevin and Don's fates were eventually sealed by a series of events that actually happened beginning in 1979, which is when the revolution in Nicaragua was taking place. And while the fighting was going on around the cities in Nicaragua, we can see here from a letter from the State Department in 1979, which was sent directly to Nicaraguan President Somoza on behalf of President Carter. And going through it, we can see where President Carter was urging Somoza to leave the country, saying your continued delay would only prolong the conflict. And thus, in 1979, we see the communist government, more commonly known to us as the Sandinistas, taking control of Nicaragua. And then we see by March of 1981, President Reagan would order the Director of Central Intelligence to provide all forms of training, equipment, and related assistance throughout Central America, which would give rise to the various rebel factions collectively known as the Contras. And then we see by December of 1981, President Reagan again directs the Director of Central Intelligence to support and conduct paramilitary operations against, at least, Nicaragua. And by July of 1982, the CIA would write a report about their activities in Nicaragua. And even though the Boland Amendments would take place in December of 1982, forbidding any help to Nicaragua, the CIA's activities were already well underway and taking place in Arkansas, Mina, Arkansas to be precise. Mina is a town of patriots and pickups, a town of 5,000 in the mountains of western Arkansas, a place that would seem as far away from American foreign policy as a place could get, and yet, one little airport on the southern edge of town is managing to raise questions that extend far beyond the city limits. A thousand miles away from Mina, here in Washington, there are investigators for both the House and the Senate who would like to know what's going on at that little airport in western Arkansas. As Oliver North's public battle over government secrets and the illegal supply of weapons to the Nicaraguan Contras is waged in Washington, congressional investigators in recent months have tried to learn if Mina, Arkansas was an illegal staging area for shipping guns to the U.S.-backed Contra rebels. This is a strange story. The facts already known are bizarre enough. What Unit 5 has been able to learn makes this story stranger still. It all begins in 1982, when this man, Adler Berryman Seal, showed up in Mena, Arkansas. My top load paid me one and a half million dollars for a single trip. Barry Seal was a drug smuggler, an extraordinary multi-million dollar a year drug smuggler, who with the help of several associates kept and serviced his drug planes in a hangar at the Mena airport. Those planes, according to investigators, were illegally modified with extra fuel tanks and instruments in order to fly long-distance drug missions to Central and South America. Barry Seal paid his associates for those modifications with tens of thousands of dollars in cash, money which, according to investigators, was illegally laundered by Seal's associates at banks in Mina. Yeah, I'm pleading guilty. 
But when Barry Seal was finally caught in 1984, investigators for the FBI, the IRS, and other agencies of law enforcement were told little or nothing about a special deal he had made with the Federal Drug Task Force headed by then-Vice President George Bush. The deal? The government kept Barry Seal out of jail, and in exchange, Seal became a drug informant and helped put in jail some of his own associates in the international drug trade. But that wasn't all that Barry Seal did. Russell Welch, criminal investigator for the Arkansas State Police. Did Barry Seal ever say to you, I work for the CIA? He said he was working, had worked for the CIA. Unit 5 has learned in the early 1980s, even before his arrest, Seal had bought one of his planes from a CIA front, Air America. The plane was used by Seal for drug smuggling, and the CIA company was paid in the traditional drug dealer fashion of $300,000 in cash. According to this confidential FBI teletype obtained by Unit 5, one of Seal's associates said he was maintaining Seal's aircraft at the MENA airport for the CIA. So what was Barry Seal actually doing? One federal agent under uh, very uh, strict confidence told me that it was assumed within his agency Barry Seal was uh, carrying guns to Central America in exchange was bringing drugs back on a free ride. Russell Welch of the Arkansas State Police was one of dozens of investigators who for years had been tracking Barry Seal and his associates. As these documents obtained by Unit 5 indicate, the FBI, the IRS, Customs, and the Attorney General of Louisiana formed just a partial list of those who wanted some answers. They didn't get them. Internal FBI documents indicate investigators were told not to look into any of Seal's activities that occurred before his 1984 plea agreement. So, blocked from seeking indictments against Seal, investigators sought indictments against Seal's associates at the MENA airport for allegedly aiding in the drug smuggling and for alleged IRS violations. So far, no indictments have been produced. At the end of this year, the statute of limitations will run out on those alleged crimes. As for Barry Seal, time ran out in 1986 when he was assassinated in Louisiana by Colombian drug dealers. Some of Seal's secrets died with him, but some of those secrets today remain guarded by the National Security Council, the agency for which Oliver North worked. The NSC has blocked a recent congressional request to examine the relationship of drug smuggling to American foreign policy in Central America. As a citizen, America didn't get its day in court. Uh, it took a while to register that uh, nothing was going to happen. We could not understand what was happening. Neither Mr. Welch nor I were ever subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury and present massive amounts of evidence of wrongdoing by associates of Barry Seal. No indictments were ever returned against any of the individuals. And I can tell you there was extensive evidence. There definitely was, was some suppression of evidence and definitely a cover-up of an investigation and somebody should be held accountable as to why that happened. A lot of people have said that the main operation stopped in 1986 when Barry Seal was gunned down. It's not true. Uh, covert operations are still going on in Maine, Arkansas today. And that was in 1995. And John Brown's absolutely right when he said that the operations running out of MENA carried on long after Barry Seal was murdered.
Here's a memorandum written by William Duncan, who had quit the IRS in disgust and was now working for the Arkansas Attorney General's office. And in October of 1991, he reported about a telephone conversation between two federal officials, saying, The CIA still has ongoing operations out of the Mena, Arkansas airport, and some other guys, in quotes, are still operating out of the airport also, and that one of the operations is laundering money. Here's a newspaper article from March 1, 1989, which states, State and local police suspect that the MENA airport is still being used by smugglers. And then here's a copy of a report written in August of 1987, the very same month that Kevin and Don were killed. And in it we can see the original information dates back to a pilot, Barry Seal, now deceased, who is purported to have flown guns to South America from MENA and drugs back into the United States. The information indicates that Seal was an informant for the DEA at the time, but also working as an operative of the CIA. During the past few years, the activity at the airstrip has aroused the interest of local law enforcement, who then attempted to conduct some investigations, but were blocked by the U.S. Attorney. Even with the demise of SEAL, activity at the airfield continued, which matches what Detective John Brown said, as well as a bunch of other reports as we just seen. And going back to that third paragraph, where they state, during the past few years, and remember this is written in August 1987, and that the investigations were blocked by the U.S. Attorney. And as we saw earlier, that U.S. Attorney back then was Asa Hutchinson, who is now the Governor of Arkansas. So now, perhaps, we have a better understanding of how Barry Seal was able to operate out of Mena, Arkansas for four years, from 1982 to 1986. Here's the oral disposition of William Duncan from a grand jury in 1991. And they're asking about when he was investigating money laundering, asking, did that arise out of an alleged drug trafficking operation managed from the MENA Arkansas airport? To which Duncan replied, it did. Then they ask, and it has been alleged that the Central Intelligence Agency had some role in that operation. Is that the same operation you investigated? And Duncan responds, yes. And going further down, they ask, and when you submitted the witnesses, the names of the prospective witnesses to the U.S. Attorney in Arkansas, are you referring to Mr. What was the name of the attorney? And Duncan's reply? Asa Hutchinson. So why might Hutchinson have blocked investigations and let Barry Seal have free reign the entire time he was U.S. Attorney? Well, here's a page from a report on July 7, 1989. And it's a report written for, and get this, Senator Edward Kennedy, JFK's brother. And in the bottom paragraph, we can see that it says, In the meantime, Casey, and that was CIA Director William Casey, had begun to look upon himself as a demigod, and knowing that the agency had to have funds for Colonel North, or Oliver North, he started to get very careless. Files that we have obtained show that without consulting Helms, Casey set about establishing his own kingdom, with him as the emperor. He obtained help from the very depths of society and put one Adlerberry Menseal in command of the drug road to obtain funds for the North operation with the Contras. The agency had used Seal since 1981 as a contact man. So Seal was working for the CIA, or more directly, William Casey. And let's not forget that Barry Seal had the phone number to George Bush's personal line at the White House. Or the fact that George Bush was also the CIA director only three years earlier from 1981. Anyways, what did the authorities know about Barry Seal in the years leading up to his move to Mena, Arkansas? Well, here's a two-page report from the Department of Justice, written on January 12, 1983, 
which coincidentally enough was the day after Bill Clinton's first day in office as governor of Arkansas for his second term. But have a look at what the DOJ knew about Barry Seal in the years leading up to his move to MENA. And as you can see, he has quite the resume. Here's a DEA report from June 3, 1983, which states, the Adler, Berryman and Seal organization, because it wasn't just Barry Seal, especially if he's working for the CIA, but he had a whole crew working for him. But the organization has been engaged in the air and marine smuggling and distribution of large quantities of cocaine and other controlled substances for several years. Current information indicates that the organization has control over at least 19 aircraft, including Lear jets, other fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters, all of which are equipped with extensive navigational and communications equipment. SEAL also has control over at least two ocean-going vessels, which are equipped with sophisticated electronics and other equipment, including heliopads. And where do you think all that equipment came from? Here's a report from December of 1983, and it's from the DEA station in Baton Rouge, sent out to all these DEA stations around the country and outside of the country. And in it we can see that SEAL is believed to utilize the MENA airport for transferring cocaine smuggled into the United States by SEAL and his associates. And all those DEA stations knew this. And probably loads more at the FBI, DEA, and of course the CIA. But of course these two guys claim they knew nothing. With George Bush being <clears throat> out of the loop, and Bill Clinton denying that he had anything to do with it, and that they didn't tell him anything about it while at the same time not denying that it all happened. So anyways, this photo of them was taken on July 30th, 1983, in Bush's backyard. And that was a rather good year for Barry Seal, as we've seen. And they didn't know what he was up to, in Bill Clinton's backyard, despite years of this? If you notice, the DEA report we just looked at was written less than two months before this photo was taken, by which point the Barry Seal organization had at least 19 aircraft operating in Bill Clinton's backyard. And these two knew nothing about it, even though Vice President George Bush was the head of the Federal Drug Task Force as well. So he was about as effective as Asa Hutchinson was. Good thing for Barry Seal. And just something I noticed from the mainstream media after George H.W. Bush died, and all the media is talking about their friendship. And in this example from TheAtlantic.com, they say, before 2004, the best-known iteration of the Clinton-Bush relationship was one that grew out of the 1992 election. But it was Clinton's successor, Bush's son, George W., who inadvertently facilitated the beginning of a genuine friendship between Clinton and the elder Bush, more than 10 years later. And they start telling you about the 2004 tsunami and what they did. And the article, like all of the mainstream media, leaves the reader with the distinct impression that the Bush and Clinton friendship grew from 2004 and on. Anyways, I noticed all of the mainstream media was saying the same thing, and pretty much all of them didn't mention a peep about the 1980s, almost like it didn't exist. Much like so much we've seen throughout this video, it's redacted. But let's not forget that all that cocaine pouring in in the 1980s would see the country engulfed in a crack epidemic by 1986, and how much of that plague can be attributed to Barry Seal during his days in Mena, Arkansas? Well, here's a DEA report from February 6, 1986, that states, on February 3, 1986, which would be 16 days before Barry Seal was murdered, the IRS made a jeopardy assessment on Seal for $29.5 million worth of delinquent taxes, 
The assessment was based on the 30,000 kilos of cocaine seal smuggled into the U.S. from 1981 through 1983. And 30,000 kilograms of cocaine was their assessment, which was probably a conservative one. And notice again, that was only from 1981 through 1983, which is right when this photo of Clinton and Bush was taken. And it was also before Barry Seal started flying this plane out of Mena in 1984. Imagine how much cocaine these planes can bring in. And what do you think Bush and Clinton were really talking about back on July 30th, 1983? If you think the cartoon fairy tale that they sold to the public as the official story of Iran-Contra, that it had Oliver North selling weapons to Iran and then taking the cash and giving it to the Contras, and that's all there was to it, then you either haven't studied it very well and just accepted what the mainstream media told you, or you really don't know anything about Iran-Contra at all. Of course, weapons played a big part of it, but that was dwarfed by the massive amounts of cocaine that was being brought in which equally saw massive amounts of money laundering as well. And a huge part of these operations were being run out of Mena, Arkansas, with its origins first being set up there by this man, Barry Seal. And it was all covered up. A good example can be found in a report by the Subcommittee on Terrorism, Narcotics, and International Operations from the Committee on Foreign Relations in the United States Senate, issued December 1988. It's more commonly known as the Kerry Committee, named after its chairman, Senator John Kerry. And I generally refer to it as the Kerry cover-up, because when you read through it, while informative, here's what he had to say about Barry Seal. A mere three little paragraphs on page 121 of the report. He briefly tells you who Barry Seal was, and he mentions the MENA airport, and that the cases were dropped, and that's about it, other than the one sentence he mentions Barry Seal in, on page 137. That relates to the now infamous pictures that Barry Seal took of Pablo Escobar down in Nicaragua. And that's all the Kerry cover-up committee would say about Barry Seal, and Mena, Arkansas for that matter, in their so-called report. Did he not get the 1986 memo from the DEA, in which the IRS assessed that Barry Seal smuggled in 30,000 kilos of cocaine between 1981 and 1983 alone? I don't recall seeing such staggering numbers from any organizations that are more predominantly written about in the report. And if you actually watch the Kerry Committee hearings, you'll notice a few times where he says something along the lines of, this is better handled in closed sessions. Which is also something that you heard from Senator Daniel Inouye during the 1987 Iran-Contra hearings, where whenever the subject of Mena, Arkansas, or Barry Seal would come up, he would immediately veto it, saying those are matters to be handled in closed-door sessions. But he did at least say this, which described things rather perfectly. Obviously, these hearings have been about issues much more profound than who did what or knew what in the Iran-Contra affair. They have presented two visions of government. One vision was described in the testimony of Admiral Poindexter, Lieutenant Colonel North, General Secord, and Mr. Hakim, that of a secret government a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. So at least he acknowledged that publicly. 
And as we've seen, Barry Seal played a big role in that secret and shadowy government, with all the aspects of the operation suiting them to a T. Even though Barry Seal was murdered on February 19, 1986, as we've seen, the operations that he originally set up continued on after his death. And eight months later, on October 5, 1986, Barry Seal's favorite plane, the Fat Lady, was shot down over Nicaragua, carrying a load of guns. Exactly two years later, Richard Garrett would say this on Unsolved Mysteries. Saline County in the central Arkansas area is overrun at this time with, uh, with drug trafficking. Which is something that the grand jury in 1988 in Saline County wanted to warn against. Because I think the public needs to know about the uh, seriousness of the drug problem here in Saline County and maybe other surrounding counties. But they weren't allowed to enter the evidence they heard into the record. I know that because you could not repeat in the report much of the testimony that you heard and evidence that you received, that you are somewhat frustrated by it. And there's John Cole doing his part in covering things up. And don't forget that those statements from Grand Jury Foreman Carl Allen and Judge John Cole were made two months after Richard Garrett had stated on Unsolved Mysteries that the drug trafficking was not only flowing in Saline and surrounding counties, but it was overflowing into other states as well. And it's, it's drug trafficking on a high level that extends into other states and into other counties. And the source for that high-level drug trafficking that was extending into other states was mostly emanating from the MENA airport in operations that were continuing on by the, quote, organization that Barry Seal used to work with. And 30-plus years later, all the documents relating to information about MENA airport or Barry Seal look like this, which looks rather familiar, doesn't it? And there's hundreds of them, much like the hundreds of documents in Kevin and Don's case that are completely blacked out in similar fashion. And like the documents that relate to Barry Seal or MENA Airport, 30 plus years later, we're still not allowed to know what's underneath those redactions. And that's because it's all tied together under one big scandal. What most people don't realize about Kevin and Don's murders and all the drug trafficking that was going on around Saline County and involved in Kevin and Don's murders is that it was all swept up and covered up under the bigger umbrella of the Iran-Contra scandal, in which all the really badly incriminating evidence was either destroyed or redacted from the public record. And that's the battle that Kevin's mother, Linda Ives, has been up against for over three decades now. And let's properly meet Linda Ives. And I can tell you from first-hand experience, after studying this case for quite a number of years, and having had the pleasure to get to know Linda over the last couple of years, I can easily state with conviction that Linda is one remarkable woman, one who in my opinion deserves a medal, and even a cape. Because the truth is that Linda's a national hero, in the very definition of a true patriot. And although Linda doesn't think about herself in such manner, the evidence for it lies in a 30 year long battle to get truth and justice for her son Kevin, and his friend Don. And Linda's been at the forefront of that battle leading the way, since day one. And check out this FBI report dated April 10th, 1996. More than two years after witness Tommy Newhouse, who passed a polygraph, came forward naming Dan Harmon as being on the tracks, as well as Charlene Wilson's confession and a whole bunch of the other documents we've seen concerning Dan Harmon and Saline County drug and corruption. But yet in April of 1996, the FBI seems more concerned with Linda Ives, writing a memorandum that states, 
Any agent reassigned to this case needs to be very cognizant of the media involvement in this case. And when we uncover the redactions, it says, Linda Ives, mother of victim Kevin Ives, has been very vocal, accusing the investigative agencies of a cover-up in the case investigation. Any agent reassigned this case needs to maintain a distance with Linda Ives and report any contacts made by Linda Ives directly to a supervisor. And all I can say is, wow, shouldn't they be looking at the bad guys under that type of lens? And keep in mind this is 1996, and none of these documents have been released yet. Linda and author Mara Lavera would have to wait until the end of 1999, at which point they got 2,000 documents, including this one and the many redacted ones that we've seen throughout this video. And have a look at what the Keystone Cops were saying about the case in 1998 in a memorandum to U.S. Attorney Paula Casey. And if you remember, she's the one that dropped some of the charges against Roger Walls, because it was the right thing to do, she said. And again, we see special Keystone Cop in charge, Ivy and C. Smith. And he states in the memorandum to Paula Casey, probably with a straight face, but one can't be too sure. But he says, We cannot state with certainty that a murder even occurred. And this is the FBI. After what, almost four and a half years, and all those files we've looked at times a couple of thousand. And the best they can come up with is, we're not sure if a murder even occurred. And that's just unbelievable. I mean, that's just as ridiculous as Fami Malik saying 11 years earlier that the boys smoked 20 joints and fell asleep and couldn't hear the train coming. But that's yet just another example of the battles that Linda's had to endure in trying to get justice for the murders of her son, Kevin, and his friend, Don. And when you look into it and see what she's been up against in its totality, her determination and relentless pursuit of the truth into what happened to Kevin and Don becomes more than admirable, especially when you look at the people involved and what they've done, from the local officials who started the cover-up right away at the scene, to state-level officials who also continued to cover things up, to officials right at the top of the food chain who protected and covered for some of those officials that were obviously guilty of some crimes. Then there's a bunch of investigators that betrayed the Ives family, such as Dan Harmon and Richard Garrett, who approached and became friends with the Ives family, promising Linda they would get to the bottom of it, only for Linda to eventually find out that they were involved in both the murders and the cover-up. And then there's John Cole, the judge in Kevin and Don's 1988 grand jury investigation, that Linda had her initial hopes pinned on to get things resolved, only to later learn that Cole was paid to place Dan Harmon as the special prosecutor in that grand jury. And then there was U.S. Attorney Bob Govar and his boss Chuck Banks, who by June of 1991, instead of handing down indictments to Dan Harmon, cleared him of any and all wrongdoing. And then there's sailing Detective John Brown in 1993, who did do a lot for the case, but would turn around and betray Linda and testify on behalf of Jay Campbell in the 1998 lawsuit against filmmaker Pat Matriciana. And by then, of course, Linda had already learned how things were working, having witnessed official after official, sheriff after sheriff, not being able to solve Kevin and Don's case. So it came as no surprise to her when Sheriff Bruce Pennington and his lieutenant Mike Frost, who were supposed to be investigating Kevin and Don's case, but were instead, like their predecessors, were too busy investigating ways to pull off their own corruption. And if you haven't seen any of the previous Murder on the Tracks videos, then you'll probably find this to be, like the rest of this story is, simply unbelievable. You see, because the current Saline County Sheriff since 2015 is this guy, Rodney Wright. And he just happens to be the nephew of Dan Harmon. Talk about piling it on. There you go. Hollywood itself couldn't write a script like this. 
And these are just a small amount of the officials that Linda's had to fight against in her battle for justice. But thankfully, and very much like Hollywood, in that there's at least always a couple of good guys who are up against overwhelming odds against the bad guys, and yet still manage to prevail. And in this story there are indeed a couple of good guys. One being the FBI's Phyllis Cornyn. Despite her superiors covering everything up, Agent Cornyn really tried to get to the bottom of things, and pushed really hard to try to get the truth out. And for her effort she was run out of the FBI, and likewise her husband was run out of the Secret Service. But her efforts were not lost on Linda, who was always thankful for the help she did provide. And another of the good guys in this story we met earlier, Prosecutor Gene Duffy, and I've had the pleasure of becoming pretty good friends with Jean over the last few months. And she, too, like Linda, is quite a remarkable woman, who stuck to the truth, and to this day is still fighting side by side with Linda, and together they make quite a formidable pair. Now some have asked me why and how I got interested in the case, and actually there's quite a few reasons. One of them was because when I was researching Iran-Contra, I came across the boys on the tracks again, and I remembered it from the 1980s. So the more I dug into it to see what happened, the more I found it tied into Iran-Contra. And although I hadn't read the Boys on the Tracks book, I pretty much knew most of its content, through all the documents and footage and news articles and so on that I had gathered over the years. So realizing that there was no central source for information on the Boys' story from 1999 to the year 2016, I set about to try and make a central source of information that could tell the story of what happened to Kevin and Don, which would parallel the Boys on the Tracks book, but also continue the story and tell of all the events that happened from 1999 to 2016. And this is what has led to the Murder on the Track series. And in this is one of the reasons why I say Linda's a hero and a patriot, because the only reason you're able to watch these videos and learn what you're learning is because of Linda's relentless determination in getting to the truth which has led to the release of a couple thousand documents, many of which are seen in this video, as well as countless news articles over 30 plus years, as well as being the very reason for the second autopsy, which revealed that the boys were murdered. And without a doubt, Linda's been the leading voice in this quest for justice since day one. And as a side result of her relentless pursuit, the various investigations and reports have revealed the multitude of crimes and corruption, especially in drug trafficking, amongst officials at local, state, and federal levels. So because of Linda's continued efforts, right from day one, we can literally see that thousands upon thousands of people, who otherwise probably wouldn't have known anything about it, have now been exposed to just how corrupt the system can be. And doing a little bit of math, we can see there's been more than a combined quarter million views on the Murder on the Track series on YouTube. And that's only one outlet, and I put the first one up in December of 2016. Linda first began her battle on August 24th, 1987, so think about how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people that have learned at the least that there's something not quite right with some of the very institutions which are charged to protect us. Like I said, a true patriot. And here's another reason I care, and why you should too. For me, I'm just a year older than what Kevin would have been, and in 1987, I smoked a little bit of dope and stayed out till like 2, 3 in the morning sometimes. And I realize under different circumstances, that could just as easily have been me. And when you consider that the killers have never been brought to justice, nor the ones that have perpetrated the cover-up for 30 plus years, and combine that with the status of the so-called war on drugs, it's pretty easy to see that any time during the last 30 plus years and counting, that it could just as easily happen to you too. And here's something else to think about. Linda and her husband Larry 
have had to deal with this ongoing tragedy for the last 30 years and cope and manage as best they can. And just to know, Kevin's father Larry, while more comfortable in the background, has been at Linda's side and supported her every step of the way since day one, showing his true character as something to be admired. I mention that because I've seen some questions asking about Kevin's dad, and where he is or how he's been. So the answer to those questions is that he's been there all along, and supporting Linda's endeavors every step of the way, and in my opinion he's a champ. And someone I've not mentioned in the previous Murder on the Tracks videos is Linda and Larry's daughter, Kevin's older sister, Alicia. She was about 20 years old when Kevin was murdered, so imagine how she must have felt, and what she's already endured and gone through. And ask yourself, is it fair that she may have to go through another 30 years of this with no answers? Especially when you consider that all the answers are right there, underneath all that black ink? Here's another question. Are there any honest FBI agents out there who want to take a shot at putting an end to this 30 year long tragedy? You have the same files, and the authority to look underneath that black ink. Or how about anyone in Congress? Want to step forward? Anybody in an authoritative position who has the ability to help solve this case, but chooses not to, should be more than ashamed with themselves, and should actually consider themselves to be criminal. Anyways, let's hear from Linda herself, and some of the things she's been through, and we'll bring you up to date on where the case stands today. On August 22nd, 1987, Kevin had spent the night with his friend Don Henry. They left uh, Don's home around 12.30 or quarter to one. Uh, on the 23rd of August in early morning hours and uh, the next thing we knew they had been run over by a train. Three weeks later their deaths were ruled accidental by the state medical examiner Fami Malik and um, we disagreed with that ruling uh, because we thought the evidence pointed to homicide. Uh, at that point we had a lot of questions and no answers uh, and the facts didn't add up to what he was telling us, so we decided to get a second opinion and uh, met with resistance from all fronts, both with our local law enforcement, with the state crime lab, uh, with everybody that we turned to. Uh, we obtained court orders uh, we, requesting samples of everything that the crime lab had for a second opinion, and uh, Femi Malik. Um, uh, resisted court orders. Uh, he refused to obey them. And here's what Linda had to say about the original investigation at the tracks the morning the boys were discovered. Chief Deputy at that time uh, ordered the scene worked as an accident against all uh, apparent police policy. Uh, they used the rear end of the train as a reference point in locating different evidence and things along the tracks. And of course, when the train left the scene, they had absolutely nothing. They literally fanned out about four deputies across and walked uh, the point of impact to where the bodies were. And whatever they found, they simply dumped in black garbage bags. Their investigation was so thorough that they left my son's foot out there for two days in plain sight. Again, that's unbelievable, isn't it? And what's even more incredible is that it was a member of Don Henry's family who found Kevin's foot on the tracks. And also, in state medical examiner Fami Malik's original autopsy, which was done the day after Kevin and Don's murders, he makes no mention of the fact that Kevin's foot is missing. So you have to wonder, 
Maybe it was Fami Malik who was smoking 20 joints. And this is the guy that then-Governor, Bill Clinton, backed and supported to the fullest. Anyways, here's Linda and Jean talking about some of the various investigations. With no support from state, federal, or even local authorities, Linda Ives and Jean Duffy continue their search for missing clues related to the murders, even though it's obvious to them that the marching orders for the drug activity come from on high, from people who have never even heard of the train deaths or the names of the two young men, Kevin Ives and Don Henry. No one wants to jeopardize that heavenly flow of money, even if it is drug money. The first investigation, of course, was the Saline County Sheriff's investigation led by James Steed. It was very apparent that he was covering up information, um, suppressing information, and certainly was part of the cover-up initially. When Dan Harmon was appointed special prosecutor, he led a county grand jury investigation, which was nothing more than a uh, several months of orchestrated cover-ups where several witnesses turned up dead. Uh, and when the state police got involved, uh, we were ecstatic because we thought that finally somebody was going to get to the bottom of what was going on in Saline County. Another investigation that was nothing more than a sham was, this, was the Arkansas State Police investigation. They now have a file that is almost three feet high um, only about an inch of that file reflects interviews that were actually conducted and it is nothing more than a sham. Uh, and then there was a 1990 federal investigation and uh, we were in fact promised indictments out of that 1990 federal grand jury investigation. And suddenly when Chuck Banks shut that investigation down in June of 91, Without prior warning, we were devastated because who has the power to shut down a federal investigation? I didn't understand then why uh, the U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks shut down the federal investigation and cleared Dan Harmon. Uh, and this was in spite of that grand jury unanimously wanting to indict Dan Harmon. And that's four so-called investigations into Kevin and Don's murders out of a total of eight that were all shut down and covered up. And let's hear Linda's opinion on what happened to Kevin and Don that night. I believe Kevin and Don were near the tracks that night and saw either money or drugs dropped from an airplane. Uh, I believe that law enforcement officers killed them and uh, the cover-up began immediately. And that pretty much sounds about right on the money. And although Linda had no idea at the time what she was going to be facing, she knew the day after the murders that there was something wrong. And she made a promise to herself, and to Kevin, that she was going to get to the truth of things, no matter what. Whatever it takes, however long it takes. As long as there is anything to investigate, as long as there is anything uh, to work on, we'll do it. And as we've seen, Linda's been true to her word since day one. And when the authorities started lying to Linda right off the bat, thinking she would just shrink away into silence, they soon discovered that they poked the wrong mama bear, as they awoke an angry and relentless mama bear. And here we are today. And let's have a look at where things stand today. Hi, my name is Linda Ives. I'm the mother of Kevin Ives, one of the young boys who was killed on the railroad tracks in 1987. 
um, and this is basically our story. There's been a lot of uh, publicity recently about the lawsuit that um, we filed, which is an FOI lawsuit, trying to get documents that are not redacted. Um, and uh, the judge is now reviewing those pages to decide whether or not we get anything or everything. Um, several of the agencies that were initially named as defendants have been dropped, but we're very hopeful to get something out of this. Um, you know, but we're not there. Uh, the, you know, this doesn't mean anything if he decides not to give us the documents. About a year ago, I received a telephone call from a gentleman uh, that says that he was on the scene the night of the murders. Um, we're in the process of corroborating his information, but there's still much investigation that needs to be done on it. So to bring you right up to date, we'll start with what's happening with Billy Jack Haynes. And the status of that is like Linda said, where much investigation is still needed. And you may have noticed online lately, there's been a little bit of dissension about Billy Jack's situation and his claims. And to let you know, as of right now, the beginning of April 2019, so far, that's all Billy Jack has been able to bring forward, is his claims. And he hasn't brought forward any evidence whatsoever to back up those claims including the videotape of the murders that he said that he had. If he has it, if it even exists, Linda hasn't seen it, nor has he done a proper polygraph to back up his claims. But at any rate, I can tell you this, there's a lot going on behind the scenes right now in regards to Billy Jack, and while I'm not at liberty to talk about that right now, I can tell you that Linda hasn't completely ruled out his claims, and there is existing information which do corroborate those claims. So when this part of the story plays itself out, We'll be back to give you full updates on what's happened. And as for Linda's Freedom of Information lawsuit, a great place to keep updated on that is a site called the FOIA Project, and their URL is foiaproject.org. And all you have to do is go into the search bar, type in the name Ives, and when the options pop up, it'll be the first one, Ives versus USA et al. And when you click on it, it'll take you over to Linda's case. And here's the URL for that should the search bar not be working or something. And down below we can see the case description, and if you scroll further down you'll see a chronology of events in the suit as they happened from the first day and on. And you'll also notice that you'll be able to download the PDFs, which are my preference. And in having a quick look, we can see that on July 25th, 2017, the courts issued an order granting in part, and denying in part, 32 defendants from Linda's lawsuit and being dismissed from the lawsuit include the CIA, the DIA, the DOJ, the State Department, the FBI, the State of Arkansas, the Arkansas State Police, and the Saline County Sheriff's Office. So the cover-up continues on. But on a sort of positive note, these three agencies were ordered to hand over their documents. The U.S. Attorney's Office, the DEA, and the Department of Homeland Security. So that was in July 2017. And what's happened since? Well, nothing, of course. Just more delay games being played. And we can see on January 15th of this year, the court issued an order rejecting the DEA's suggested redactions. And then just a few weeks ago on March 7th, the court issued an order denying the DEA's motion for reconsideration and ordered the DEA to release both documents in question as redacted. So there's a small win anyways. 
But Linda's not holding her breath too much in the lawsuit anymore. As we've seen, she's been through the FOIA request processes before, and she knows the games they play. But something I find disturbing is of the agencies dropped from the lawsuit, one of them was the FBI, whose documents have made up the bulk of the ones that we've seen in this video. And here's a post from Linda explaining the history of these documents and how she came about getting them. And it started with Mary Leverett, author of the Boys on the Tracks book, who was doing research and requested files from the FBI. And they responded that they had zero documents on the murders of Kevin and Don, as we saw earlier in this video. So Mary Leverett, who knew better, went to Congressman Vic Snyder, and the FBI eventually admitted they had over 17,000 pages on Kevin and Don. And ultimately, the FBI released 2,000 pages, most of which were very heavily redacted, as we've seen. So think about this. If the FBI isn't even sure that a murder actually occurred, then why does the FBI have 17,000 very heavily redacted pages of documents related to Kevin and Don? And why is it that 32 years later, those documents are still not being released? What is it that the FBI, the courts, and the government of the United States itself covering up and I think it's pretty clear what the answer to that is. And I'll tell you what, this battle is far from over. And we'll be back bringing you updates along the way as we go. And as I sign off, let's listen to the words that Linda said over 20 years ago, including the warning she gave us. And ask yourself, how have those last 20 years gone for the country? There aren't any words in the English language that can describe how it makes you feel as a parent or as a citizen of Arkansas. Uh, to see what our officials um, are capable of doing. Um, you know, I think we were just kind of uh, naive, um, common, ordinary people. Got up and went to work every day and came home and went to bed uh, and assumed that everybody else did the same thing and tried to do what was right. And uh, I think Kevin's death has been uh, the rudest awakening that anybody could ever have uh, to see what really goes on and to see what's important to elected and public officials. This is not a political issue with me. Um, we were never a political family. Uh, our lives revolved around the ball field and going to the lake uh, and all of the things that a family does. Uh, until the Arkansas political machine reached into our lives and destroyed the tranquility that we had. And uh, I want the American people to know that we have to stand up against this kind of corruption and we have to hold our officials accountable and make them work for us instead of against us. In my experience, I believe what is happening here in Arkansas is only a small sample as to what is happening nationwide. And I believe that all of America has to stand up and rescue the American system of justice.
There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to hell When she gets there she knows If the stores are all closed With a word she can get what she came for She's buying a stairway to hell There's a sign on the wall But she wants to be sure Cause you know sometimes words have to meet In the tree by the brook There's a songbird who sings Sometimes all of our thoughts are misgiven. Ooh, makes me wonder Ooh, makes me wonder. When I look to the west And my spirit is crying for leaving In my thoughts I see Rings of smoke through the trees And the voices of those who stand
And she's buying a stay away to heaven.